Bruh, Encima, what do you plan on having for dinner tonight, man? I'm going to have a center cut ribeye and a flat iron times two from Piedmontese. Wait, how many steaks is that? It's three steaks. Oh my god! Three steaks, two flat irons, one center cut ribeye. And the great thing about these steaks is that uh, they have a decent amount of fat, but it's not so much that if you had three steaks, you're going to be, you know, eating a massive amount of calories. Mm. So that's why it's called the diet steak. <laughs> yeah. So for myself, it's Friday. I'm like kind of, you know, a whole day or a whole week, I should say, of like some pretty solid eating. Like I've been on my game. So it's like today I just want to go like, I just want to go crazy on the big old steak. So I'm going to have a bavette. I, there you go. I know. And, I, and the funny thing is, it's like, I'm still going to be 100% on my plan because that, that whole thing has 100 grams of protein. I think only like 16 grams of fat. So I'm going to have that, probably some potatoes. Just, oh my gosh, I can't wait, dude. I'm going to... Mm, mm, mm. So if you guys want to enjoy some of these amazing steaks, uh, higher protein, less fat, which just means more jackedness, less fatness, uh, head over to pibontese.com. That's P-I-E-D-M-O-N-T-E-S-E.com. At checkout, enter promo code POWERPROJECT for 25% off your order. And if your order is $99 or more, you get free two-day shipping. Head over there right now. What up, Power Project crew? This is Josh Sellage, a.k.a. Settlegate here to introduce you to our next guest, Kevin Bass. Kevin Bass is a PhD student. He has a bachelor's degree in medical anthropology and biology from the University of Texas, Austin, as well as a master's degree in immunology. Kevin's motivation stems from his experiences as a child in which he had a bad brush with modern medicine that resulted in him becoming bitter and angry towards medicine and science. He has stated it's strange to find himself where he is today, the exact opposite of what he would expect in a PhD program studying both medicine and science. Kevin states that he has two professional identities, one as a doctor and another as a scientist, while still being suspicious of both. Early on in his career, he believed nutrition would solve the world's problems. If only people could adopt the proper lifestyle, nutrition, and food system, they could prevent many diseases and solve many of modern society's problems. He would later come to understand that things were not just that simple. Addressing root causes can make a big impact, but so can clever solutions. On his website, he has what is famously known as the Quack List, a list of popular health and nutrition experts who spread false, misinterpreted, or non-evidence-supported claims about health and nutrition. And he's also currently debunking all the major health claims made by guests on the Joe Rogan experience. But that is a different story. Please enjoy this conversation with our next guest, Kevin Bass. And we are rolling. What? Yep. I'm not even ready yet. Did you? But I think this. Uh, so Kevin is. He set the world record for giving us notes. I don't think any really anyone else has been like this yes. uh, courteous. I will say. Yeah, that's amazing. I was so surprised about that too because I thought like I thought like I wasn't sending you guys enough notes. It was weird. Yeah, that's why I wanted to say that because I'm like, no, dude, you're overachieving right now. He uh, wrote today's show. <laughs> we, so take it away, Kevin. Did you get the script? <laughs> yes, we did. Yeah, we, we sure, actually got it. Yeah, we, we sure we sure did. Anyway, great to have you on the show. Thanks for flying out. I understand it was uh, an ordeal and a half for you to get here. So appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs> Fourteen-hour trip should have been four hours, but don't fly. Uh, can I say don't fly that air? Yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Don't fly United. I was going to think it was like spirit or something. (laughs) United. United. Well, everybody I talked to after this, like before I even like mentioned United, everybody was like, "Uh, yeah, I've had the worst, like worst experiences with United. And then I was like, 
Oh yeah, I flew United, so it sounds like it sounds pretty common. I don't know. Wow. I'm I am not gonna fly United again. <laughs> I'm super excited to have you here on the show today, and I think um, whenever you have an opportunity to talk like longer format with people, it's it's uh, a lot easier to get a better understanding of somebody. And uh, I know that you're uh, deep into the science, but you're also deep into what's practical. And I think that maybe when people see you on Twitter making certain statements, they might think that you're only into the science. They are only into like what's already been researched and how it's been researched and this latest study and so forth. But what I see from you and just from following you a little bit more than just seeing a tweet, I'm like, ah, okay. once I get to know this guy, now I understand like his point of view where he's coming from, you're speaking about the scientific literature, you're talking about some of the research that's happened in the past, some of the current research that's going on, and then you're out there really just, from what I can see is, I guess, poking holes in people overstating what they think to be true or or what they have adopted as a belief, like the ketogenic diet is going to solve all your problems or that intermittent fasting or some sort of fasting is going to solve uh, problems or even like uh, sometimes we hear with keto that it could help with uh, dementia and Alzheimer's cancer, you know, all these different things. And what I like about what you're doing is, Hey, you know what, is this really true? Or are we starting to spread around some stuff that could potentially be dangerous? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have a, uh, I like to focus on the science a lot because science is science can tell us with uh, more confidence. What, um, what we actually know and we don't know. So if we can know with, with great confidence that we know something, and if we can know um, also what we don't know with great clarity, then we can very easily put that into practice. And so um, if you know what the science is, then you can know for sure which things will definitely work and which things are less certain to work that you can potentially try, but you aren't sure that they're going to work. And whenever you overstate the science, whenever you start saying, you know, things that we don't actually know, then you get into a situation where mm, you can be doing things that may not work. And what we know from, um, what we know from the scientific literature, if you look at people who have plausible hypotheses, things that make a whole lot of sense. And we've seen this over like the last hundred years, but probably we could even go th- back thousands of years back to like bloodletting and humoral theory of disease. And there's so much we could even talk about from like the history of medicine, all sorts of crazy ideas that everybody believed that everybody practiced for these thousands of years. Um, we can see that most of the time, the things that are very plausible that haven't yet been tested by science, most of the time, these things end up not being true because there's almost an infinite number of plausible things that one can say about how the body works, about how athletic performance works, about how weight loss works, about how health works. There's almost an infinite number of plausible things that somebody can say. So whenever you start, so if you just take all of those things, most of those things are not going to be true because health in the body is not infinite, right? It's actually very finite. There's actually a limited number of things that can be true, a huge number of things that could be true. Most of the things that could be true are not true. So I like to focus on the science because um, since most things are not likely to be true, are unlikely to be true, and we know that we know that empirically, this isn't just me saying this, this isn't just me like having rhetoric, like plausible rhetoric. We, we, people have actually done studies, looked at the, the failure rate of different 
treatment interventions, surgery. A lot of times surgery, uh, people think sur- some surgeries work. They actually don't work any better than placebo. Mm-hmm. They've done, uh, <laughs> they've done analyses of the things that look like they could be true in randomized controlled trials and found out pretty much systematically 80 to 90% or even more, depending upon uh, the, the paper that we're looking at, they're not true. And that even goes for modern medical treatment as well. So if you look at things that we thought, say, 30 years ago, we just assumed that they are true before we had what was, what's called evidence-based medicine, which mainly leans on randomized controlled trials to, to determine whether something's true or not, which is the gold standard now, which is what I mean whenever I say uh, whether something's true or not, it's whether it's true according to a randomized controlled trial, we know it for sure from a randomized controlled trial. If you look at the last um, 30 or 40 years of medical treatment, the analyses, the, uh, the randomized controlled trials that have been done on the medical treatments over the last 30 or 40 years, the medical treatments that we took for granted that we thought were true, mm-hmm. up to, say, 40 or 50 percent in the analyses, the papers that we have uh have been shown not to be effective. So this is even modern medical treatment. So, and so then you ask yourself, well, if some random person on like the internet is going to think something's true and doctors are missing it all the time too, doctors are really well-trained and you know, they, they know their science pretty well. Like what is the likelihood that people are going to randomly guess whether something's true um, without, without randomized control trials. So I focus on the science, focus on randomized control trials because that's what we can actually lean on. Um, you know what are what are some things that are maybe reasonable for us to say because <clears throat> you know it's my understanding of just the world in general uh is that we don't know much you know that's kind of my general understanding is that it seems like the more that we research stuff the more that we kick up uh things the more dust and the more particles that get kicked up and then we're like I didn't even know these particles existed. I didn't even know, like, it's more than just dirt that we kicked up. There's also other sediment in there. And you just, you learn a lot about how you don't really know a whole lot. So what are some things, when it comes specifically to nutrition, what are some things that you feel that we can say with uh, clarity and have a plausible hypothesis about? So this is one of the interesting things is, (laughs) you're right, we, like, don't know much about nutrition at all. And there's only a few things that, like, we really know really well. Um... Which is why people like to say things that are maybe things that we don't necessarily know and act as if we do know them, because once they say those things, everybody's very interested. Oh, we actually know this. And then you have some guys saying, oh, yes, we do know it. So we're going to go follow you. The things that we know in nutrition are very, not very much, right? We know about calorie balance, right? We know that um, if you want to lose weight, you want to have negative calorie balance. We have some idea of a good idea, a pretty solid idea. Let's uh, pause that just for a second. What's a calorie? Do we know that? <laughs> I, see, this is where I think we're fucked up. I don't think we know what a calorie is. Well, um, we know, as you know, we know what a calorie is from the experiments. You know, you put, you burn things. I th- there's like calorimeters. You mm-hmm. burn things. You see how much energy that they release right. whenever you burn them, right? And of course, probably my guess is what you're alluding to is like the way that they interact in the, with the body is not the same as the way they interact in these. And maybe the way they interact in your body might be slightly different than mine. Sure. But we still have some sort of, it is our measure, I guess, right? Yeah. It's what we have to go off of. So I guess for the sake of the podcast, whenever we're talking about any of this shit, we're just talking about trying to get closer to the truth and we're not talking in absolutes necessarily. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But about, yes, we, yes. Um, yes. But I do think that we should, if there are areas like, for example, the calorie that you think that, you know, it's whatever, whatever, whatever anybody has any issues with, like. 
like we should we can even just discuss it because I think that um, I do think that a lot of times when people say that we don't know anything, there's some people who say that we don't know anything a lot of times. And then they point out uh, things about any aspect of, of human health. Calories is one of them. And they say, oh, well, we have this problem with it. Therefore, maybe we don't know anything. I think it is helpful sometimes to go into detail about um, because I think that what you said is like super important and super true. And it's also hard to understand like what a calorie even is. And so that's a whole long discussion. But it is a discussion I think that you can have and then you can come out at the end of it with something in your hand and you can say, even though at the beginning uh, we know that a calorie interacts with the body different than it does with the scientific instrument, it still can be useful for this reason, for this very solid reason that we come out with at the end. So, so like uh, there's no reason to go around being stupid because we can at least have some information that we have some measure of uh, energy that we expend and energy that we consume. Yes. Much like if I was to walk off the top of this building, uh, while I can't say for certain, I can't say with a 100% absolute truth that a tsunami doesn't happen or something weird doesn't happen. There's a fucking plate tectonics going on and, and, uh, and I, you know, the earth moves up towards me and I'm totally safe. But for the most part, we can just say, Hey, if you, uh, fall off the top of this building, you're probably going to get hurt really bad and maybe even die. Yes. But about, but about calorie balance, it is something that, um, it is the case that you must, expend more energy than you um than you take in mm -hmm. now what does it mean to take in energy and i think that's what you're getting at but and so we don't know as much about that we don't know how much of calories are actually always necessarily absorbed and how they're absorbed like does it interact with your microbiome they process it so you don't actually absorb those calories and we don't know how often how, and there's a lot of genetic differences and interpersonal differences between how people's energy expenditure will go up or not go up depending on dieting or overeating. Um, and that's a whole really interesting thing. Like some, there's some like mouse studies where you actually deprive them of calories and they, they'll actually continue to, to gain weight. Like they'll, they'll downregulate. I feel that. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Damn. So, so, so we know that energy balance is real, but the nuances, I guess of it. Yeah. The nuances are where we get the, start getting the gray air. So when we start saying in like black and white terms, Oh, energy balance is the only important thing. We do actually need to talk about the nuances and those nuances will be a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, gray, gray. It might also, also might be kind of small though. Right. I mean, like, so if we talk about like protein leveraging or we talk about fiber, um, just maybe not being, uh, maybe fiber, not being the equivalent of four calories per gram or something like that. It's, it's, it's still very minor in the grand scheme of things. We can assist people if we talk about, uh, getting a hold of the amount of energy that can, they consume every day, right? Yeah. I mean, and it's a very practical thing, right? Because you can say, okay, calories in, calories out. Um, and you guys do this all the time. I'm sure you guys are like, you guys are, you guys are jacked. So you guys know how this works. Um, let's say you think that you, 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 uh, you expend 2,500 calories, right? And you're, maybe you're wrong, mm -hmm. right? And you expend less than that or more than that. You can always adjust the calories and eventually you'll figure out what your actual calorie balance is whether or not you know what's determining that precisely so you don't even yeah and which is where practical things come in yeah so okay what else like what other things are do you feel that we are sure of at this moment in time Pro as far as nutrition is yeah, concerned protein like protein sure. and muscle muscle mass and probably i would say with i personally i'm confident and it may be the case that science is confident that protein 
it's also going to improve your metabolic function as, as well. Mm-hmm. So it's going to like reduce your like visceral fat, et cetera, that, um, in addition to Im- improving your muscle mass. So I think that protein is like one thing we know for sure. Uh, how, what's the upper end of protein? I think that's, an, that's, an, that's a question. And of course, you can go talk to like the, the international sports, whatever the, the organizations, they'll tell you one thing, but like bodybuilders and people who are practical will sometimes swear that it's actually maybe even a little bit higher, yeah. the, the protein, what, what protein is great. And I, I notice like that more protein I add on beyond the recommendations, like it, it, it really works. But yeah, we do know that a lot, like, we do know that protein is king. For, not one well, necessarily not king, but training is king. But protein is. is if you're going to eat something, maybe eating protein might be a wise choice because it might keep your overall energy intake modest, so you can continue to be healthy. I guess. <laughs> yeah, and it's going to help you get jacked. Okay, All right. A question off of that is because uh, we'll probably come back to what we're talking about here. But with that being said, about like protein. What makes a quack on the quack list? Because, like, for example, we're talking about protein right now. And Ted Neiman's Neiman's all about this, right? Yeah. Um, But he is also on your quack list. And I'm also curious, like, what makes them a quack? And then also, you know, when you look at what a lot of these individuals talk about, is it that potentially they talk to black and white? You know, because we're talking a lot here about truth. So are they stating certain things that, in your opinion, these are not absolute truths and they're stating them as truths? Is that why? Because I feel as if a lot of these people speak with nuance, like they can understand that, okay, this is my hypothesis on why maybe potentially like Rob Wolf, our ancestors ate this way. Maybe this is a good idea, but I haven't necessarily heard Rob say that this is absolute fact. Like he talks about it and he he was even on our podcast, but he was also like, you know, this might not work for others, right? So he understands that this is a hypothesis. So I'm just curious, like, what makes some of these individuals quacks? So uh, we can talk about, we can start with Ted Naiman. So, well, well, the first thing that I want to emphasize is that that was, so there's like several versions of like the quack list. The first version was just, <laughs> Boy, I love it. Okay. <laughs> the first version was just me. Um, well, so I thought that, there's a lot of really bad information on the internet and I was frustrated by it. And I thought that it would be a good idea to have like a list. I didn't think anybody would care that much, but I just thought (laughs) (laughs) I didn't think people would care that much. And then, so I just like one day just started making a list and releasing it. And then like everything blew up on Twitter about this. (laughs) 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 I'm just picturing the Aflac duck. (laughs) They actually like, like actually like half a dozen people were emailing like the deans and faculty at my med school telling them how terrible I was and how they needed to kick me out of my med school. What? Yes. Like a lot of like low, like especially like a lot of the low carbers, they were, you know, they were really upset. Oh, wow. They're trying to cancel you. They were trying to cancel me. Wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, like the, unfortunately for them, fortunately for me, like my, uh, the administration was pretty cool and they were just like, yeah, um, make sure you, you tone it down and focus on people's, statements so for the next versions of the quack list especially like the re- the recent one that i'm going to do now it's it's more focused on specific statements to actually justify exactly ah. but but what i will say like looking back um for especially in terms of the way and also the, the quack list has evolved in terms of how i think about things in order to for exactly the reasons that you're talking about i want to be fair and i want to make sure that er- every decision is transparent and and justified by some sort of rationale so what is what are the rationale now and why would maybe some of ted's stuff 
Uh, and we'd have to actually talk about some specific of uh, Ted's of Ted's statements. Yeah. But why would some of Ted's stuff be uh, on the quote unquote quack list? And I, and he's not on the quack list right now. So he, on the new version right now, he's not so because the old version. Yeah, the old version. How do you get off the list? <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So the way the list the li- the way the list works now, and so the old version is just was just my uh, intuitions, and I could defend those in those terms. But the way the list works now. Um, and probably some of his statements would be, would, would qualify. And so they would actually, but I just haven't had time to add those, but the way it works now is just what you guys have been saying. Um, if, if, so my criterion for truth, or my criterion for, for saying we know something is true mm-hmm. is a randomized control trial on a well-conducted randomized control trial. So a randomized control trial is, um, you basically just take a group of people and if you have two groups that you're comparing, like one treatment that you're, if you're look, compare, looking at one treatment, right, you take two groups, of, you take one group of people, you, you randomly put some of the people in this group of people into one of two groups, right? You give one of those groups, of those two groups, the treatment, and then you give the other per, the group a placebo, right? Mm-hmm. And a placebo is just like a sugar pill. And we use placebos because just giving people the treatment itself can actually cause them to think that they an effect is happening because the mind is very powerful. Yeah. Is it really a sugar pill or is it nothing? Uh because a sugar pill wouldn't have a reaction. <laughs> just, yeah. That yeah, don't make no sense. No, no. This is a really good You're gonna end up on my quack list here, <laughs> feeding people sugar pills. This is a really good point that you're making too, because you're joking, but actually the choice of placebo, what you use as a placebo can radically um impact the results so there's this randomized control trial on fish oil that was recently done called mm-hmm. reduce it and they and and for their placebo they didn't give a sugar pill because they're giving people fish oil in the treatment group right so for the placebo <laughs> they're giving them not a sugar pill but like an oil so they want to give like fish oil but they gave them mineral oil well the thing is is if you give people mineral oil who are taking like statins or maybe even just mineral oil in general it can actually oh. reduce drug absorption of the statins. so the people who got the mineral oil actually weren't weren't um absorbing their statins as well so their so their heart disease risk went up so it made it made the the fish oil look better than it actually was because the placebo actually hurt people's health so yeah i know that you're joking but like it is actually super important what (laughs) placebo i mean it's an incredibly important thing like a lot of stuff has been written on this yeah uh so i don't i don't think you should i don't think you should change the way you are for other people because criticizing ideas is not as fun as criticizing people and so I think you should stick with you keeping that, <laughs> you know, I, I understand, I understand like you're shifting, like you, you said, you might shift to like just criticizing like something they said, but I think it's, I think like questioning the things that are brought up by Dave Asprey, I think are great because yeah. I think somebody like Dave Asprey is very forward thinking. He does, he's done a lot for the low carb and the keto community. Um, the bulletproof coffee concept, I think uh, has some merit. He's assisted people with like losing weight. But can you poke holes in some of the things that he says? Yeah, I'm sure you can. And I'm sure that any of these guys that are on the quack list, whether it be me or my brother or whoever else is on up, I think I might have actually been on. Was I ever on the list? I think you were on like the first version. How did I get on? I want to be, I want to stay on that list. I want to stay on the top. (laughs) What happened? How did I get off of it? Well, so the, the, so nobody, so technically nobody's on the, I know you're, I know you're joking, but to, nobody's on the, the, the newest list yet. Cause there's like different. Yeah. Don't change it. Man. Like let's, it ha- let's keep this thing rolling. <laughs> I would probably. Um, okay. I think it's good. I, no. I mean, I'm hundred percent serious. I think it's good to have people 
even for myself to have a little bit of a bullseye on me because yeah. yeah, I do talk to a lot of people. And so if you bring something up and I'm like kind of second guessing it, I think that I should be second guessing. Sure. It. Yeah. No, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just think that a lot of people took things personally and that was the issue. Of course, here's the issue. And I agree with you hundred percent. So for, for that reason, like even though I'm focusing on statements, they're going to be attached to specific people and specific people's freaking names are going to be in the list. And so even though specific people are going to be on the list, it is going to focus on the statements because that way nobody can tell me, oh, it's just your opinion. You're just defaming people. You don't like that guy. You don't yeah. like that guy. Yeah, yeah. So I have to, I have to justify the thing. But yeah, I think going hard at, at individual people for, 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 for spreading like BS is like really, it's, it is a good thing putting people on a target because then they're like, oh, well, people are saying bad, bad things about me. And if it's justifiable, then maybe I should think about not not uh, spreading misinformation, for example, like what yeah. you're talking about. It's not necessarily saying anything bad about anyone. It's it's more yes. like you're just saying, hey, I think this is kind of foolish yes. to share information yes. in absolutes when we don't really know that for sure. Yes. And it's just fun to call people quacks. So <laughs> so even though it is really about preventing misinformation, it's also there's also a theater to it. So you also want to have fun calling people quacks and people saying this or that's bullshit. But in the end, it's nothing's personal. I don't have any personal problems. I do think some people have like something wrong with their brains. Like how can they like, like behave the way that they do? But like example, (laughs) something's got to come to mind. (laughs) Um, it's, it's a lot of people, like a lot of people, Oh man, uh, you want me to give an example? Yes. Oh gosh. Yeah, we can't say people. Yeah. <sighs> okay. So like, so like for example, uh, okay. So let me. So now that we're talking about a specific person, let me tone that down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> What's their name rhyme with? Mary Hobbs. You know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mary Hobbs. <laughs> so, so so how can how can this person like? say i mean they just it, they're just like a, re- a repeating record they just keep saying the same thing over and over again and they don't whenever somebody says like they're never like they're never like oh well my, maybe i could be wrong but like um but like maybe there's this other way that it could be right and so we don't really know no this person's like an advocate for their ideas and they know that that's not how science works that's like activism that's like political activism why are you mm. advocating for an idea you should be advocating for the facts like you should be advocating for what we know and then just be honest with what we don't know and for whatever reason Mary Hobbs is not interested <laughs> is not interested in that approach to things and i guess it's not for whatever reason the reason is probably in my opinion um this is my opinion. It's like his livelihood, her, her, Mary, her, her <laughs> livelihood, her livelihood is, is determined by like how much press that their statements get and also their sense of meaning. So he's been doing this for like, what, 20 years. So his sense of meaning, his sense of purpose, his sense of identity, also it's all wrapped up into that. So that's mm-hmm. probably one of the reasons why it's like whenever he says, she says carbohydrate insulin model is is right she's almost saying that like i'm a good person right i've been advocating for this i'm a good person so that that sense of identity and personal goodness is tied up in that yeah so that's why it's like a human thing it's ego and p- power money mm-hmm. that's why people do it what is this hypothesis this carb insulin hypothesis so here's the idea is like it's really basic so people take in carbohydrate they release insulin insulin causes um the carbohydrate and whatever other energy substrate to be put into to in the case of carbohydrate mostly into muscle into liver and in the case of fat into fat tissue and so the idea is whenever you eat a lot of carbohydrates um 
it causes all the energy substrate in your blood to be put into all those tissues. You now no longer have any energy substrate in the blood. You now need more energy. So you eat more food mm. because you need more energy. And then you put that into the, to the liver and the muscle and then into the fat. And so you start overeating because insulin is driving you to overeat. Yeah. You guys and heard is that, this. Is that fair? Is that true? Uh, like there's no good, there's no evidence. For, like there's no, every time you test it in a randomized controlled trial, it doesn't, it turns out that, um, that other factors are, uh, more important than that. And so maybe it's it partly true. It could be like, it could be that, especially in the case of refined carbohydrates, I don't know about you guys, but have you ever had like, even like, like some crackers or what by themselves? And then like, like an hour out, cause you didn't have any time to do anything else. So you, like an hour afterward, you're like. You're like almost like shaking and then you almost like want to pass out. Like, have you ever had that happen before? Personally? No, but I do know some people that that has like a blood sugar issue perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you, and this, so then in order to get that to go away, you eat, right? Mm -hmm. So like there's some situations in which that might be the case. And there's some recent data suggesting that there's some validity to that, but that explains such a tiny, tiny portion of, of energy balance and why people really actually overeat. So the mm -hmm. carbohydrates in the model of obesity is way overstated to the point it's absurd and it's for all intents and purposes like wrong. Yeah, I think uh, you know, people think like carbs are gonna make me fat. And they they're not necessarily they just sit there on the shelf. You have to actually consume them and then uh at some point you need some sort of responsibility to stop at some point. Sometimes some of the issue with stopping is that the processed foods taste really good. And so you tend to, you know, rather than eating, you know, one granola bar that has chocolate chips in it, you eat seven of them. And then that drives mm -hmm. you to want to eat everything else in your pantry and freezer and and everything else that you have going on. And then plus, people don't really factor in fat. Like there's a good amount of fat in a lot of these things, too. So you're taking in a good amount of calories and you're not really probably consuming much in terms of protein, even if you were to eat like. And some of them had dairy and like ice cream or pizza or like there's really just not that much protein. So you're pretty much just serving yourself up some carbs and fat. Is there any truth to eating carbohydrates and or like spiking your insulin and perhaps making yourself a little bit more hungry? By 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 spiking your insulin after you eat carbohydrates. Um, well, OK, so whenever you actually look at the the all of the animal studies, because you have to do this in animals because you can't do this in humans. uh if you change the expression of like insulin receptors in the brain, like you reduce them, then uh, the animals actually eat more. So insulin is actually a satiety hormone. It causes you to want to eat less. Hmm. Um, that's the way insulin works. So, so as far on the brain level, no, uh, maybe on the body level, there's some possibility, especially in terms of like the, the dips in blood sugar at the end there's some possibility that, that that could drive it but again if you're eating like protein and other things along with it which you should be um and, and higher quality foods then you shouldn't then then the release of carbohydrates will be much slower so then you might, might not have that problem so more fiber more protein basically what you're talking about yeah but as far as like maybe carbohydrates by themselves could could be responsible for that um but like besides that i don't I don't think there's much evidence, especially when you mix it with fat, like what you're talking about, like in like donuts or whatever, when you're mixing it with fat, you're not getting a whole lot of that, like hypoglycemia afterwards. So you're not necessarily maybe like overly hungry. You just enjoyed that yes. food so much that you just want to eat more of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's like, it is like, it is like, um, it's like, it's like any behavior that's pleasurable, right? You want to keep doing it over and over again. And, and the more you do it, the more you're going to want to keep doing it because mm -hmm. it's great, you know? Yeah. 
So yeah, it does work. That's the bad thing about like drugs or, uh, or food is like it fucking like you're craving pizza, you eat pizza. It totally works. Yes. It makes you feel great. So, I mean, this, the, you know, Mary Hobbs, the individual who's, you know, <laughs> going off about the carbohydrate insulin model. Uh, okay. So as far as the research goes, the research is weak, but as far as the anecdotes go mm-hmm. uh, on the general population that talks about that experience, we can obviously see that a lot of people feel that that happens to them when eating massive amounts of processed carbohydrates. So my question to you is what type of importance do you put on anecdotes from large populations? Especially like if these anecdotes, a lot of these anecdotes kind of not say can't use the word prove, but they back up what some of these individuals are saying. Yeah. Um, let me think a moment about how to answer that because that's actually, uh, that's actually a that's actually a, a deceptively. It would be very easy to answer that in a very glib and superficial way because, but that actually is kind of a deep. That's like kind of a. That's even like, that's kind of at the heart of, of everything that we're talking about. So, um, so I think with anecdotes we can say what works and what doesn't work, right? Like if somebody's losing weight by like changing their diet from say like whatever diet they're having to Mm -hmm. whatever other diet, it doesn't matter in any case, then it's working. We know something about that's working, but we, what we don't know is, is why that's working. Exactly why it's working. Right. And that's important. It's not important just for academic reasons. Like, Oh, I just want to know why. Cause I'm curious. No, it's because if carbohydrate insulin model is, is true, Mm -hmm. it means that you must, you must restrict your carbohydrates in order to lose weight. But if it's not true and something else is driving that effect, whenever people stop eating carbs, something besides carbohydrate, then there's more options available to lose weight. And people have more freedom to do other things besides just restricting carbohydrates. And that's why, practically speaking, understanding why the theoretical reasons why it's not just academic it's very it's very practical is important but yes of course you have to accept that these anecdotes and if they help people they help people and it's important to recognize that too so that was an awesome answer by the way i yeah. think that that makes a lot of sense i think what people are when they're talking about like carbs i think the carbs get mentioned so much because uh, they're in a lot of our you know snacks and processed foods but if you really are to think about any processed foods, um, like overly processed foods, um, almost I, I'm trying to even th- consider or think of, I, I think they all have stuff in them that we don't really that that we can potentially overeat on, you know, whether it be uh, almost no matter what it is. I mean, it, it could be it could be a keto snack, for example, like the keto cookies and it could be a vegan cookie or a brownie. Um, it could be potato chips, it could be low fat, this low fat, that, or it could just be regular snacks. But in general, none of those seem like great options. What I see like a a lot of people, not that you can't eat them, but what I see a lot of people doing is they're replacing the real estate in their stomach for better choices with worse choices. And the worst choices that you continue to make, you continue to make them over and over again. Your palate is like heading in one direction. And it's hard to kind of flip your palate the other way. That's why a lot of times once a once you mess up in a day and you eat a donut, you're like, I might as well just kind of keep going because mm-hmm. you're, you're already enticed by that. Your mind already went that way with the receptors in your brain, whatever the fuck's going on scientifically. But you're you're just heading in that direction like a juggernaut and you feel like you can't 
stop and you don't even want to stop. You want to continue to enjoy that pleasure. So you're like, I'll get to it tomorrow. And then sometimes that rolls into, I'll get to it on Monday. <laughs> I'll wait till Monday to, to start doing it. But I think a lot of times we're, we're, we're looking at the carbs or somebody like myself would say war on carbs just to have a quick, simple message of, Hey, you know what? You should probably back off of all those processed foods is really my, my main message that I try to share with people. And the war on carbs is just a enticing clickbait type of thing to get people to pay attention in the first place. Yeah. Um, and so that gets to another really interesting thing that we've also been alluding to this whole time. And I struggle with this constantly also, but how do we message in such a way that first off, it's easy. It's, it can be turned into a meme. It's easy for people to start talking about like no carbs, right? That's easy for people. Mm -hmm. And it's also provocative, like, oh, no carbs, like people have been eating carbs forever. So like, why do you need no carbs? Like it, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit novel and marketable, um, marketable. And yes, it's totally. So how do we message things in a way that pays attention, pays attention to the nuance and conveys the nuance and doesn't mislead people, but also be fun about it. And that's even at the heart of the quack list, right? If I'm calling people quacks, but I really mean like a little quite a bit more nuance. A lot of people aren't necessarily going to catch that nuance. And they're going to think, Oh, well you're calling David Sinclair quack. Like, why are you? So, but it's a really important question, I think, for us to keep asking about how much we do simplify our message because we can end up misleading people and then the discussion can become dis distorted. Another really good example, right, is the whole low-fat movement from like the 1970s and 80s, right? Yeah. This whole low-carb movement is in many ways like a response to that. Mm -hmm. But the reason the low-fat movement happened was for the same reasons now I would criticize the low-carb movement, right? It's because people were exaggerating and they weren't conveying the nuance and the real reasons that they thought that fat fat was bad and because of that uh we got this whole low fat movement now we got the pendulum swing to low carb movement when are we going to actually start like being reasonable and we and we're, we're and and it's so that's 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 my concern but i also understand the other side like you got to market things one other one other um interesting thing i noticed by listening to your podcast is i've listened to, i've seen sean baker a lot on on twitter and on instagram he's like the king of this right yeah. he he his this his social media is so terrible it's like the most it's like really outrageous the stuff that he says but then whenever you actually get him on he's like he's like he's pretty good he was like what i'm since i'm going to keep dropping names he was like way better than paul saladino like paul saladino i don't know he's just as bad on his twitter as in as in person but um but like Sean Baker, uh, he's two different people in that respect, and he plays that game. And so there's a game to be played there, but how much do we play that game? And so that's, a, I, so I can't answer that question because we need to educate people, right? That's the fundamental problem. And if they're not educated, then, 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 then we can just, we can just say any distorted message. And until they're educated, they're going to need distorted messages and to, to listen but I think that's the yeah. thing. It's like with Sean, for example, you know, like you mentioned on his social media, he's a different way. But the thing is, is like that gets people in the door. Once people are in the door and they see what Sean's actually putting forward and the things that he has on uh, MeetRx, etc., um, it's reasonable. Like he, he, he doesn't seem like when you're inside, you can then see like, okay, there is a lot of nuance going on here. That's what happens with Sean's work. A majority of these people, yeah. you know, but the thing is, is like, What's going to grab the attention to get the person to step into my world? Mm. And that's, I feel like that's where it's just like, if you, if you, if you make things too nuanced and almost too complicated, you're not going to get their attention. I, I'm, I, I completely agree with you about that. And so I'm not going to say, oh, well, 
you still need to make things nuanced and then you just like nobody ever listens to you i'm not going to say that yeah. but, but what i will say is that even though it gets more nuanced once you get into sean baker stuff when you actually listen to his followers and people who will like mob you on <laughs> on social media they sound like the kind of sound bites that he gives out on social media the message that yeah. most people usually discuss and talk about is the simplified message it's not yeah. so they're not really imbibing and taking in and internalizing the nuance they're so that's the so that's the thing is like that the, the public conversation becomes defined by the sound bites, even among the people who who listen to it. That's the problem. Some Not the, to say you can solve it easily. But. Some of the dangerous things that happen is uh, no one can ever share a message. It doesn't matter where it comes from, but no one can ever share a message and have it be understood the same way that, as the person that delivered mm. the message in the first place. Mm. Yeah, which is a theory of Karl Popper's who just kind of inviscerated science <laughs> altogether and had talked about pseudoscience and things like that. But I think that that is kind of at the heart of everything is that, you know, if I say, hey, like you can't do any damage by being on a carnivore diet, somebody else will take exception to that or somebody else might have their own interpretation of how they're going to do a carnivore diet. Uh, let's just say your average person reads that and they're like, OK, I'm just going to only eat meat. And they go three days down the road. They only eat meat. They do lose a, a little bit of weight. They feel a little bit better. Uh, but then they cheat on their diet. Then they go three days down the road. They cheat on their diet. They go two days and so forth. They keep going back and forth. We don't know what the ramifications of that diet is because now you're starting to mix eating tremendous amounts of fat, tremendous amounts of food overall, probably over consuming calories. Uh, and you're on these days where you're falling off the wagon, you're maybe drinking alcohol and eating and um, just probably not being very responsible for your nutrition. So I think that's a thing that's not really talked about when people talk specifically about a keto diet or they talk about a carnivore diet. I hear people oftentimes talking about the sustainability and how long you can do it. I hear people on the other side saying, hey, look, a carnivore diet, there's nothing safe about it. Um, but I think that they're looking at it under a microscope saying, like, if you did a carnivore diet only for, like, years on end, which very rarely can someone follow it, but some people can. I mean, we just end up with, like, this, we end up with, like, just within the confines of a carnivore diet, we end up with one guy who can do it every day for 10 years, and we end up with another guy who is on it just about every other day and can't, can't stay uh, confined to it. So it's hard to gather information on what's really working, and it's hard to know what are the ramifications of any of those different styles of diets, even within one diet alone. So I'm going to say something really impractical here, but I feel like it's true, so I'm just going to say it, even though it's really impractical. So um I, I I agree with you. I think that's a really, really good point is that a lot of times I think that a lot of the keto and the carnivore discussion, even though I think Sean Baker and Paul Tudino or whatever, all these carnivore guys and, and you guys, you guys mostly eat meat as well, right? Correct. Okay. Well, I'm not carnivore. Yeah, not carnivore, but like, yeah, eat a lot of meat. So, so I think that um, among people who tend to promote that, they're very adherent. And then the people who are listening to them many of them might be a lot less so. And, and in fact, maybe a lot of the reason that the people who listen to them like that message is because it like gives them license to, to almost eat what they want. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, you're saying I can actually eat meat. Okay, great. Now I'm going to keep eating the meat that I wanted to eat. And then they're still going to eat a lot of the other French stuff. fries and shit like that. Um, and then like lie to themselves like, oh, I, I actually like am carnivore, but then like much of the time they're not. So it's not really even much of a change. Um, so then. So then, so then the the question is, is like, how much are we helping people whenever we, and I actually ask this all the time. I was asking this, I was talking, I was talking to a friend last night about me coming on here and talking to you guys. It's like, I know we, we share very different perspectives and I was just like, and I was thinking, 
Um, what kind of impact am I going to make and all this other stuff? And I do think asking what kind of impact we're making is should be at the forefront of the way that we're thinking. Um, but most people, most of us aren't doing that. Most people are getting out there. We're saying something and we're not really even sure what we're doing. So I think people need to, this is, as I'm saying, this is impractical, but I think diet gurus, health experts, et cetera, it would be nice if we stepped back a little bit and started, this is totally, we started promoting research. We started asking, well, of course, Sean Baker is doing his own uh, trial. Mm-hmm. So that's good. We should start trying to start our own trials, do our own studies rather than assuming that this or that is actually going to work based on, based on, based on our personal anecdotes. So that's what I would like to see more of instead of like saying vitamin D is going to be the panacea for everything. It's going to cure everything. You, and, and telling people to take their vitamin C, they, those people should be spending a little bit more of their time talking to scientists, talking to policymakers, talking to people in government, being like, hey, we need more research for vitamin D so we can actually answer these questions. So, you know, I get what you're saying there. Well, first off, on the impact side of things. OK, let's just use since we're, we're going uh, Saladino and Baker, let's see, let's use Paul Saladino and Sean Baker as our two examples mm-hmm. here. As far as impact is concerned, you were mentioning that. We just had the example of the individuals that, you know, they'll, they'll take some things that some people say and they'll, it'll give them the reason to still eat meat, but they're eating a lot of trash, right? So they're not even applying a lot of the things that these people are talking about, Sean and Paul. But then if we look at the individuals who actually take mm. what they're talking about, apply into their lives, they start having positive health benefits. A lot of their potential autoimmune disorders go away. They lose weight. They become healthier. That is a positive impact. And they've had that. This has had a positive impact on thousands of people at this point so i do get the idea of promoting and trying to get your own studies done which sean's doing right now but they're also having a massive positive impact there are the people again that aren't really applying it well so it's not helping those individuals much but there are thousands of people who it's impacted positively so like let's on, on that side of things what what's your take on that because they they are impacting like you mentioned like they if we I can imagine that Paul and Sean have asked themselves, what kind of impact am I making? And they've seen that positive impact, which is why they may continue going down that road. So then what in lies, what is the problem there? I think, um, I think that's good. I think, I think we should be getting out there and just doing our best and then making our, the impact that, that we're making. And I think they are making a positive impact. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I think we should also be asking what is our goal? So for, Paul Saldino and Sean Baker, mm-hmm. for example, they are promoting, say, a carnivore diet. If you go carnivore, you can reverse your autoimmunity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but is what they're doing, and I'm not going to say that I'm, no, it's important. To, so is what they're doing um, actually going to like reverse the obesity epidemic? Uh. So it, 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 are we actually, see, the obesity keeps cr- increasing. You know, uh, uh, Atkins, wrote, Atkins wrote his books in the 1970s, mm-hmm. right? Gary Taubes in, in like 2002, 2003. Uh, Neil Teichel was like 2008, 2010. And the whole proliferation of low-carb books, right? Yeah. And vegan books, of course, like plant-based books, whatever, all sorts of diet books. Yeah. But they don't actually, people are, it's like overall, the obesity rate is still going up. It's like almost 40% now. Obesity, what, not what, just overweight. O- overweight's yeah. like, it's almost like 80% of people are overweight or obese. It's incredible. So um, is, is, is us just promoting these things to people who like to hear this message? Is it going to really, you know, but I do think it's good to help as many people as you can and do yeah. what you can. But we also need to ask, like, 
if we're actually talking about the obesity epidemic, which is a lot, what a lot of people are actually kind of, many of us are interested in, uh-huh. we're, 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 many of us are idealistic. We really want to make a difference. Are we actually going to make a difference as like diet gurus? And, and I don't think we are. And so I think we need to do something a little bit different to, to make a difference in that respect. So that's maybe not, maybe not have a free country. It might be our only way out of it. <laughs> I think that would be the truth of it. Cause if you look at a lot of other countries where there is an obesity, it's either like a third world country, you know, People think it's like better, you know, in some of these other places. But, you know, America is interesting. And I think I think I think the standard American diet, actually, I think it's great. Uh, I love that there's people that are 600 pounds. I love that there's people that's 800 pounds. Okay. I love that there's people that are, well, that are all how to get canceled. Can we believe everything no, right I, now? I, I love it because that is what human beings are about. Human beings are supposed to be different. We're made to be different, and when we when we have freedom and we're left to our own devices, you know, then we're, we might we might uh, squander off and end up heading in the wrong direction, and end up being an alcoholic, or end up being a drug addict, or end up being addicted to pornography, or end up in jail, or end up being successful, or end up doing whatever. So, I think the diversity is is good in a lot of ways. I I don't like the fact that people have gotten themselves to be so heavy that they're sick. You know, that's that's some of my concern. Is like. How do we rein these people in to be healthier? How can we assist them to be healthier? And what we see in America is that people have been fat here for so long, it almost seems like there's some sort of adaptation going on here because the like maximum fat threshold is, is higher than it is in other countries, which is really interesting. I don't know if that's in our genetics or, <laughs> or, or where that came from, but people can seemingly be uh, 50 pounds overweight, 60 pounds overweight, and not really have a ton of negative uh, side effects, which is really interesting. Like, I wonder, you know, how, how far can that get pushed? Like even, even our message to lose weight, is it even a good message? Like what you're saying about impact? Yeah. Losing weight from an aesthetic standpoint, of course. Yeah. You look better. That's great. But does it really matter a lot? Like, I think if we were to do a lot of blood work of a lot of people just kind of walk in the streets, um, yeah, we're going to find some people that are unhealthy, but we're going to find a ton of people that are healthy and overweight as well. So it's, it's hard to identify what our messages are, uh, what the messages of anybody else is in terms of diet and what this kind of average person is doing and the impact that it's having in, in any way. Yeah. Um, so, so let me ask you this question. Would you be happy with the rate of, like, would you be happy with the rate of obesity and overweight staying at like 80% or, um, maybe, maybe the, um, so it's going to continue to get higher and people don't seem to care that much. And then also the, the link to type two diabetes and potentially now what they're calling type three diabetes, dementia and Alzheimer's. I don't know how much science is behind that, but it seems that there's some connection there. Um, people don't seem to care. People seem to keep on going on with their normal day to day lives. And they, there's a lot of disease and there's a lot of things um, that are rearing their ugly head and, even with our message from the three of us or four of us um, and the messages of hundreds of other people, no one seems to care. So you, okay. Um, so, so what if there was like an epidemic of like, of like, of like drug of like drugs and then nobody, they, they just enjoyed the drugs and they didn't seem to care. I mean, should we just let that happen? Like, right. I mean, I, 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 that's I already, like what that's you, already yeah. here. Yeah. Well, I, well, I like. <laughs> okay, so it happened in China, right? Pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, yeah. And everyone's on a drug. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. 
That's um, here. Obesity is already here. Even cigarettes, like there's the the label shows like, hey, this is going to kill you and people still don't care. Well, okay, but cigarettes is actually a great example, right? We actually have dramatically reduced cigarette yeah. uh, smoking and we didn't. But by what? I mean, we used taxes, right? We made sure that there's designated. Yes, laws. So yeah. do we want laws on food? Well, well let me ask. Let me ask you this: Do you do we want do we want to, do we like the laws on cigarettes? Are they okay? I think it seems like people are okay with that, but people are not going to. You take away someone's candy, they're going to fucking kill you. you. Tax or just them. tax it. Yeah. If you tax their they, sugar, so they're trying that in other countries. I don't know how effective it's going so far, but they're doing that in the UK and stuff because America is so fat. We've helped mm-hmm. the other countries get fat too. <laughs> apparently there's some data from portugal suggesting that some of those interventions are actually working so the rate of childhood obesity is actually going down in portugal which nice. is really cool um it's portugal but like you know we could use some of those ideas um i think that if just like with smoking right we the public health uh establishment convinced everybody that smoking was was bad yeah right and then so that people were more willing to accept policies limiting smoking in restaurants and and in different places and also taxing smoking that became more acceptable so the idea would be that if we could persuade other people if we persuade people that um the processed food isn't good then that could become more acceptable we could have policies which is which actually relates to everything that we've been talking about in this way including the quack list in order to do that we have to have a message that they'll understand that they know that the processed food is the problem right which is which is why the in part like one of the original motivations of the quack list is like many different gurus focus on like carbs or fats or animal products or whatever the heck it heck they want to focus on, and that gets a really confusing message to the people when what we really just need is to tell them that it's about processed food and the reason we say it's about carbs, the reason we say it's about fat, the reason we say it's about animal products, whatever we want to say it's about is because we want to get we want to get attention to ourselves, right? And so the attention that we're pulling to ourselves is actually undermining uh, a kind of broader message that the public needs, which is just processed foods are bad. And everybody needs to be saying that. And everybody, mm-hmm. that needs to be the main message everybody. The reason they're not saying that is because of their own self-interest and our own self-interest because we want to, or because, yeah, it's our own self-interest. So that's, that's part of the reason for the quack list is like if we could have like a uniform message from all of us, then we could maybe even uh, start to, I don't know if you agree. Do you agree with taxes on, on cigarettes though? Like, do you think that's okay? I don't know. You know, in this country you start making laws on food, you know, that what, what like, if, I mean, but what if people believed that, that what if people believe that eating donuts every day was yeah, as bad so as cigarettes? I, okay, is that, so I, I don't agree with it because who's to say what's bad? Well, you know that eating donuts is bad. Do we? <laughs> I was going to make you fat. Isn't that what we're here for? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, but, but there's going to be a line though. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like there's going to be, someone's going to say, Hey, beef is, beef is bad for you too. They already sure. say that, right? Sure. Sure. So now you're going to tax me more on my meat. Uh, sure. Like, I'm sure. not happy about that. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone's like, Hey, it's even Steven. Cause we, we've taxed all the bad food. Yeah. Well, who's to say what's bad. And I don't want Mc, like, I don't, yeah. I don't want free enterprise to go away. I don't want, like, I want McDonald's on every corner. I want Starbucks on every, that's what America is about. And the people that get left behind are the people that just aren't paying attention. The, the, where I feel badly is that our kids get addicted to, or quote unquote, addicted to foods at a very early age and at a very young age. And then it's hard as an adult once you start saying, oh, man, wow, it's it's 
it's been the processed foods the whole time. I didn't even really realize it. Now it's hard to make a change because you've already been doing that for 20 years. Yeah. Um, but what if we could come up with an agreement about what we all agree is bad? We can all pretty much agree, right? That like hyper processed foods, like donuts, like a lot of sugar, a lot of like refined, mm-hmm. you know, uh, grains and a lot of like oils, like all into one thing that tastes really, really good. Yeah. Of course we enjoy it too. Um, but like people can still enjoy cigarettes. I can still buy cigarettes. Right. right. Um, so, so make a donut like eight bucks. What do you, I mean, I mean, what, I mean, <laughs> I'm down with it. I, I'm just poking holes at what you're saying. I, I, I'm just playing Deadville's advocate. Cause, cause I, I agree hundred percent. I don't want people to be fat. The only reason why I said that I'm in favor of it is just because it's part of our, our diversity. It's part of being human. There's, there's no fat zebras. There's no fat lions. There's no fat polar bears. They just are what they are. You know, the only thing that are, that's fat are, are mainly Americans, <laughs> human, human beings and, and our pets you know, that we, we, we feed them, you know? Yeah. And another thing that is, that's really interesting about this discussion is like all, all three of us and pretty much everybody in this room, right? We're all very internally driven, right? We're all like, we all have a lot of discipline and a sense that the decisions that we make um, will will determine our destiny and we're in control of our destiny, right? Mm-hmm. We have, I think all of us in this room believe that. And that's probably why we are where we are is because of that sense. Like I can improve myself. I can become better. I can through discipline, through practice, through intelligent application of effort, I can become, uh, I can become great, right? We all kind of believe that. But not everybody believes that. Not everybody has that. And I think some of that is a personality thing. Some people pe- uh, believe so strongly in what they're currently doing that they, that if we were to if we were to propose any particular diet, they'd say they would say I could never do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I could never. Uh, yeah. I could not make it through one day without carbs. I can't even make it through one meal. I, I, it's not for me. That's for people that are in shape. I can't do that. Mm. <laughs> That's kind of what we're up against. And then we're up against billions and billions of dollars from the top. What I think there's 10 major food companies uh, in the United States. You know, you would think there would be like a lot of them, but there's really just there's 10 major food companies that have billions and billions and billions of dollars to continue to advertise to us, to continue to kind of be everywhere. And I don't know if like taxing them or, or any of those things, I don't know if they make sense, but it does appear that we're at a point where like something needs we have to, to do something. Something has to happen. I, and and I, I don't I don't like regulations either. But like, what do we do? What do we do? It's I mean, so that's all. And so that's so that's 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 all I get. That's another thing. That's one of the I things think teaching yeah. young, young kids. Yes. Would be yes. A major. Yeah. Major yes. factor. Yeah. I yeah. Don't know how education. To get that yeah. Yeah. Like policies even just to improve education. Like so in Japan, there's something called Shokuiku where throughout K through 12, they get taught. They have like a special class where they learn about where their food comes from. They learn how to cook. It's like home economics, which we've mm. gotten rid of here mm. for whatever stupid reason. I don't know why we've done that. But a lot of people can't even cook now. Right. Oh, a lot of people can't oh even cook. God. They can't even prepare their own food. And so how are you supposed to take processed foods away from them? I mean, like you're not like they have to have it. So, yeah, I mm-hmm. think that we have to start. That has to, but that could be a part of policy, too. Anyway, we're just we're just talking at this point. <laughs> I want to go. Not- <laughs> I want to go back to something that you mentioned before, though, when we were talking about Sean and Paul, um, you asked the question, uh, but will this like deal with the, obes- the obesity epidemic? And then we get gotten to this point where every single individual has their free choice to do what they want. But let's say we took that choice away and let's just say that. We were to impose the diet protocols from Sean and Paul on all of the obese individuals. More likely than not, they wouldn't be obese. So 
then what does that have to do with this? Because like, I mean, obviously everybody, I believe a majority of people on this list, we, we just mentioned that the big problem is the processed foods. We know that a majority of the people on this list also believe that the big problem is processed foods, but then they have their own personal protocol of how you should do like, okay, processed foods are bad. Let's go paleo processed foods are bad. Let's go keto. Let's go carnivore. Right. If you took those, if you did, that would deal with the obesity epidemic for a majority of people. If you did take away that choice and force these diets on them, it would. So then, then what's next? Like then, then what, what else is there? Uh, like, like, you know, you said that was the thing you said, is this going to deal with the obesity epidemic? Oh yeah. What they're, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What the, yeah. The people advocating and giving people free choice. Exactly. Like, okay. you know, like that was the big thing that you, you were saying, well, I mean, okay, cool. We're having impact, but is it, how, how are we going to deal with the obesity epidemic? Yeah. I mean, it could, if we took away individuals choice and we just told them to do, let's just say the carnivore diet, they'd probably not be obese. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure it's so much about that. We need to take away their choice. We just need to sort of education educate is better. Educate is good, but like, change the defaults a little bit so that um people have first off people need to have the option of cooking people have to have the time to cook right Mm -hmm. and uh, let's be honest though this is how i think about it i think most people are not like us most people are not like driven like we are most people are gonna and i know that i know that we want to encourage people to be more driven but some people are just never going to be that way i've been in like i've had long friendships and relationships with people who you just can't they're not going to change like there are some people who just that's just their nature they're not they're not go-getters you know and so for those people and then they're not happy being fat but they're just sort of like they're just sort of like they just that's what they do and this is what i think maybe i have like a too negative opinion but i just i try to be practical this is my experience is that some people are just we call it like i don't want to call it like a lazy but like they're just not sort of like internally driven to change anything. They're just kind of accept what the environment gives them. And and I think that's a lot of people. I think we're exceptional, right? People are going to call me like arrogant or something. Probably like everybody's going to call me all the comments are going to be like this arrogant fucker. He just thinks science is the best and everybody's lazy. And so like they need for, for to listen to him and he's going to take care of everybody. Right. But what I'm saying is like, I'm not I'm saying there's a large proportion of people like that and that maybe they need a little bit more help. Yeah. And instead of forcing people, we educate people and then we make it a little less easy to like to like uh, to, to buy processed foods instead of like go home and cook. We make it more we make it more difficult to the point that people are like, oh, shit, fine, I'll fucking go to home and cook. Like mm-hmm. they're never going to want to do it, you know? Yeah. Some make pe- the barrier of entry into getting shit that's bad for you make that higher that's and it. make it easier to have foods that are better for you yeah so we can still be gluttons and eat a bunch of donuts you know during our cheat days or or, or whenever we've just like we just have given up mm-hmm. for like a couple of days or whatever we can still do that it's just like it'll maybe be a little more expensive for us and then like um it'll be a little bit more hard to do and so we'll probably be disincentivized to do it we'll probably be like oh shit like i don't want to fucking have a cheat day now because it's too much of a pain in the ass at this yeah. point that's all like not force anybody to do anything. Just like a little bit of taxes on soft drinks. They, it, it seems this, the soft drink taxes work. That's all. Mm. I don't know. I know. I know people are going to think this is elitist. I'm arrogant and all this stuff, but I, I don't see how else to change unless we make everybody super educated mm-hmm. and then like super internally driven like us. 
you give everybody a bunch of drugs or something or whatever they're going to need to do that, right? That's, I feel like we have, some regulation's got to be a part of it. I think uh, teaching people is fair. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. Uh, teaching our kids and, and things like that. And, um, you know, I've heard so, so many people over the years say, hey, this should be taught in school. Yeah. And while I do agree with some of those statements, I think if you're a parent, then you should just take it upon yourself to teach all the things that you feel are going to be really, really important because uh, our government's not going to just, they, you, know, you can't uh, expect them to step in for everything. And so with my own children, I've been communicating with them about nutrition for a long time. Another one of them is, you know, any, they don't do anything crazy with nutrition, but my daughter, every time we eat, she always just drinks water. You know, it's like, that's a great decision. It, she, uh, she never has orange juice. She never has apple juice. She never has soda. My son, he'll go 50, 50. He'll have a diet Pepsi here and there or Coke or whatever. Um, he'll go back and forth on those things. And probably the last maybe three or four months, I've noticed that he's snack snacking less. Um, he's lost some weight and it's, it's just under his own will. Um, he was yeah. kind of asking more questions more recently. And so I've been teaching them from the time they were very young. I was never, uh, well, I I, th I don't feel I was ever like abrasive with anything. I just said, hey, some of these foods, if, if you eat a lot of them, can, uh, you know, make you heavy. And I can say, hey, you know, so-and-so in our family, you know, this person, my mom died from obesity. My mom bought, died from being fat, from not being able to control the food that she ate. And so I can point to people in the family and say, hey, you know, you could end up on a walker towards the end of your life and end up dying early, you know, like my mom did. Um, if you make poor food choices all the time, you can end up uh, going down that same path. And I'd hate to see you go down that same path. So maybe you want to make different choices. And I just would kind of repeat those things, you know, from the time they were five years old, I would talk to them about stuff like that. I'd talk to them uh, just like they're adults. And I, it's been really awesome to watch them make better choices. They still are kids. They still have McDonald's. They still get their McFlurries and stuff like that here and there. But uh, for the most part, they make pretty good choices. So, so we should have a Mark Bell in every classroom. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> just pull me, pull me out of your, uh, out of the, out of the corner of the uh, room where I, where I was facing the corner with a dunce cap. I think, I think that would be, <laughs> I think that would be great. I think that's what we need. We need, um, we need that in every kid's life. And we need, uh, if, if that's the only, if that's the one thing that we can agree on. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that is, that's the start. We, we should do that. And I don't understand why we don't. And so maybe what a lot of us should be doing in this space and i and i welcome anybody to drop into my dms or, or send me an email or whatever maybe we should get together and we should start talking to policymakers about um how to get something like that or, or what are the barriers to, to to changing like you know elementary school curriculum in such a way we could get something like that and maybe instead of you know spending some of our time that we would like to be on instagram or whatever else promoting ourselves and telling everybody what our diet is great and getting more clients. We should maybe spend some of our time getting together, even people who disagree on some things uh, to actually try to make these kinds of changes happen. Instead, I mean, talking about it's good, like on the podcast is good, but we should actually really start trying to make these changes happen. To actually do something. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So just, you know, let's do it. What about maybe more accurate food labels? Or in this case, uh, somebody on the, uh, the live stream, Jay Rose just pointed out like, have more of a warning sign, not the the healthy heart symbol to try to trick people into thinking like, oh, these Cheerios are good for you. What about the small things like that? Is that like an issue where the food labels are always like, what, 5% here or there? Is that making people obese or is it just the fact that they're still just having an overabundance of 
you know, said mis misinterpreted label. I think it's twenty percent. Yeah, whatever it is, I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I'll go with five percent. So go twenty six percent. I'll go five percent so that way my macros are clean. You know. <laughs> I think the food labels are worthless. Like they're not telling people at all what's healthy. They don't help people at all. Like they're yeah. not they're totally irrelevant. Um, of course, you can use them to count calories if that's what you do. That might be helpful. But a lot of those things, like, does anybody ever look at like how much vitamin B is in your freaking food? Like nobody looks at that. Nope. Like nobody. Uh, none of those numbers matter at all. What people really need is like, is like something like a uh, like a. Uh, there are in some countries. There's like a. Um, like a stoplight system, like green, yellow, red. But another thing people we could do is like have like sort of just energy density, right? Energy. So that's what uh, Ted Neiman does. He's got his uh, protein to energy ratio. That seems to be pretty good. Do you agree with that? I think, um, I think, okay. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that in, foods protein is highly associated with the more protein you have the less energy in whole foods so in that sense yes and it tends to be those foods are also not calorie dense so there's a lot of volume in those foods but what i actually think is okay so here's a really good study that they did and i knew i I was going to review this before i before i came here but I, but I know the, I know who it is and I'll, and I'll, I'll send out a tweet about it. So Barbara Rolls did this study where she gave people, I think there was like six different casseroles and different groups of people she had, uh, go, go eat them. I think maybe even the same person ate each different casserole on a different day. They were blinded to what the casseroles were, mm-hmm. but they had di- very different protein contents, but they were all otherwise completely identical, completely identical. And I think the protein was from processed protein. Okay. And then she looked at how satisfied they were and how much energy they ate afterwards. So uh, an indicator of how satiating that the casseroles were. She found there's no difference for the protein. Okay. So no matter how much protein, what percentage of protein, like very low or very high, no difference in satiety. So what, what this means is, and and the interpretation I get from, there's a guy named Chris Gardner. He's like a professor at, at Stanford or whatever. And I've talked to him a little bit about this. What, and then also from other stuff that I know, I think my takeaway from this is that protein rich foods tend to be very calorie uh not calorie dense yeah. right but it's not the protein that's driving i agree that. with what you're saying okay cool i cool. totally understand cool, your cool, cool, your cool, point cool, is cool. that like uh it's not necessarily the gram it's not only the grams of protein that are in a chicken breast it's the act of chewing a fucking chicken breast and taking all the moisture out of your mouth and you know consuming it and digesting it and stuff like that that makes it makes it satiating it's the it's the texture, it's the makeup of it. It's not necessarily just the protein, although the protein could be uh, another factor that's in there. Yeah, so 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 the protein energy ratio could be like a marker for something like this, or you could just write calorie density, energy density. Either one would be okay. It, either one would be way better than these freaking labels that we have now, which are useless. I can't believe that we have still, who like who thought that was a good idea, you know? And some people do. They think that putting calories on the freaking menus at Starbucks, when I see calories in the menus at Starbucks or like wherever, I, I like buy the thing that has the most calories. I'm like, this is going to hit the this spot. Is a, this is going to hit the spot. I'm going to buy the most calories. <laughs> so good. This is a pretty big, uh, I know, right? Like if you were a caveman, that's what you would do. Yeah. You'd be like, hey, it's got 10,000 calories. It sounds perfect. <laughs> Live off that the next couple of days. Pretty big statement was made by uh, Rob Wolf was uh, not to buy things that have food labels. 
Yeah. Like I, you know, it's, it's an understandable point. It's like, okay, well that means you're going to like what the butcher and you're buying, you're buying vegetables and you're buying fruit. Yeah. Yeah. But that seems yeah. like a great way to like if, so I, I, I believe that if you were to eat like that, if you eat kind of, you know, quote unquote whole foods that it's very difficult to go wrong with those foods. Although there's still a lot of things within the confines of that, that you can go haywire on because yep. you could put like, you could use condiments or you could yep. use butter, you know, and start putting butter and rice and meat yes. and things like that. And then you can still be in the same boat as you'd be in if you were eating uh, Doritos. It'd be a little tougher though. It would, yeah, it could be a lot harder. I, I thought it was very easy to do that. And I've done that before. I've gotten quite, quite, um, you can fool yourself. Like I used to have this rice with um, eggs and oil and I would add lots of oil because it's good. tastes good. <laughs> Eggs, rice, and oil. And I just like mix it all up. And I had vegetables too. I'm having vegetables, right? And this is just gigantic meal. And you can eat a couple of those a day, man. You'll get, you'll get big that way. And mm. not, not in a good way. Like sesame oil or something? Yeah, something like that. Sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? What do you feel about the, um, the fasting community? The people that are like, because I saw Jason Fung on your list. I saw Walter Longo on your list, right? <laughs> so what, what, what about that, that community kind of a, uh, gets to you in terms of their statements of what is true. I mean, my, the first thing I wanted to say, and then I was like holding myself back, but then I'm like, okay, I'm not going to hold myself. I'm going to say it like, the, it's crazy. There, people are crazy. And these fasting people, it's, it's all like all this popular health stuff is, is nuts in my opinion. Right. I mean, uh, first off, Fung, Fung is uh, an interesting guy. I shouldn't say too much. He'll probably like email my professors because he does that. <laughs> to people um he, he did that to like he did that to alistair mcalpine and he uh -huh. did that to uh, yoni friedhoff he tried to get them fired um or at least his assistant tried to get alistair fired off of an article he wrote on medical brief and of course alistair should have been more careful about like he, he he went a little hard but whatever like um and then what for yoni yoni like was pointing out anyway it's not important but yeah about those guys so Fung, Fung, Fung has a really weird way of going about evidence. He's brilliant. He's brilliant, but in like a really bad way. Like, <laughs> okay. Like he, 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 he's very creative with how he reads the medical literature, but he reads it in an extremely biased way in order to show that he's right. And, um, he's really good at making these really good stories. And they're also really rhetorically compelling. Like you can listen to him like, damn, like screw the, you know, screw the medical establishment, screw it. But the stuff he says, the way he does it is not uh, appropriate. And he ignores a lot of evidence. <sighs> anyway, it's not about fun. Like the, the community though, about fasting is mm -hmm. fasting is fasting helpful. Yeah. If you adhere to it, right. If you like adhere to it, and you reduce your calorie intake. And if some people can adhere to it and reduce their calorie intake, that's great. Is it better than other approaches on average? Uh, so a, a friend of mine, so Ethan Weiss, he, he did this trial called treat, right? You, you guys have probably seen it. It's, it was published last year okay. where um, I think there was like 200 people or maybe 60 people. It was, it was a few people. They put them in two different groups. Some people, they said to only eat at a, a consistent times, right? So eight o'clock, you know, 12 o'clock, Six o'clock, right? Mm -hmm. Only at those specific times, you're good to go. And then the other group, they said, you know, time restrict like eight hour window or four hour window or whatever it was he did. Uh, he did that and like there's no differences in, um, in, in the two. But the reason he's found no differences is because he had a control group, right? He had a group that actually did something. And he also found more muscle loss in the fasting group. So compared to the 
even though there wasn't even though there wasn't a significant difference in weight loss, there's actually a significant difference in in, mu- in appendicular lean mass loss. Even though calories were the same and protein, was uh, the they same. didn't they didn't control for protein and calories. He just the it was just dietary advice. Like here's the window that you need to eat. Well, that can make sense. I mean, that makes total sense because when you look at the average individual, if they're not intaking the same amount of calories, you'll tend to eat less food in a shorter window. You will just eat less food. It's harder. So, but, I mean, but it was it was both groups. Both groups had a similar weight loss, but yeah. more lean mass loss in the fasting group. Yeah, right. So uh, it's probably similar calorie deficit. But, but then more lean more mass like loss I would, maybe and yeah. maybe that's because whenever you do fasting right uh, you're trying to fit all those calories in a tiny window you don't have time to go eat that chicken breast along with the yeah trying to eat that amount of protein in a small amount of time is more difficult yeah it's just not pleasurable too like it's you have to bulk. go out of your way to do it yeah. you do but, but the really interesting thing about that study is that uh-huh. most of these fasting studies don't do something like that. they don't have a good control group like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. where they actually um, they'll compare like fasting to somebody like nobody doing anything mm-hmm. right. And of course, like the fasting group is going to do better. But like if you have a, a really good control group that re- leaves, loses a similar amount of weight, what happens then? Yeah. And so that's what that's what he showed. So my, my thing about fasting. And so, OK, so that's actually consistent with some of the literature. Late day fasting, like where you eat more of your calories later in the days. You guys mm-hmm. have to know about this is probably worse than early day fasting, which who wants to do early day fasting, though? I, I don't want to eat most of my calories at the beginning and then like eat nothing in the afternoon. I'm going to. F- freaking eat so there is a little bit of truth to like circadian (laughs) rhythm type stuff that seems to be like the effect yeah yeah it's it's like a it's a small effect okay it's like a small effect it's not like it's not going to change your life like somebody like uh what's his name sachin panda he's Mm -hmm. gonna change everything no the reason everybody in his studies does better is because they're like paying attention to like how they're eating and not eating too much that's why they're doing better it's not because they're his approach is better you have a modest improvement for, uh, like a tiny, tiny, tiny improvement you can barely detect in terms of metabolic outcomes by eating more mm-hmm. earlier in the day. But it is something, be- like if you want to optimize, you want to eat more earlier in the day and less later in the day. And so there's something to that, but it's, it's a small, it's a small, small difference. Um, but overall, this community, let's talk about, uh, so Jason Fung, like, and then he'll like often give these anecdotes about how um, his, his, uh, his patients like lost a lot of weight, they reversed their diabetes, et cetera. Well, There'll always be one thing I'll say is there'll always be people who like follow a dietary intervention adhere to, especially if it's extreme. Like if you if you throw extreme interventions at like a lot of people, you're going to find someone who's ready for that change at yeah. that moment. You're going to find somebody who's ready for that change at the moment, and you hit on that person. That person's going to have like it's going to be like bam, it's going to mm-hmm. be like a huge difference. And so if you tell them to fast for like three days, you're like just keep fasting. Of course they're going to do well if they're really motivated. They're going to yeah. do great. Um. So, so, so then, so then you can say, oh, well, everybody else who like quit and like left or everybody else who didn't want to fast because the people who are going to, who are like going to want to fast are like going to be a tiny, like a select proportion of the population. Yeah. They're all going to leave. Everybody else is going to leave and you're going to have all these success stories around you. But that doesn't mean that like say, telling everybody to fast, you're going to cure everything because mm-hmm. it's, it's about, it's about motivation. It's about whether people are going to actually make that change. Adherence. And so, and so the difference between fasting or any other thing, it's no different. It's just, there's no difference. And then, okay, let's talk about Longo then. So Longo has the whole fasting mimicking diet thing. And he also big on like restricting protein, right? Cause the mTOR and like IGF one and all this, and the, like the, the, he has these studies that he's done. He's, he's been a part of publishing. I mean, he had a really good, he had a really prestigious career in like longevity research. There is some truth to IGF one, or there appears to be some sort of link between IGF one and cancer potentially because of pot, like there's people that have polymorphisms, right? That 
they don't produce any IGF-1 and, and the whole community doesn't have cancer. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, you, if, I think if you have... They're also like four feet tall, I think. Yeah, they're like four feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Apparently, like, have psychological problems as well, mm. which is really weird. They like, uh, but maybe they, maybe they do because they're four feet tall. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there's evidence from that, and then there's also animal studies where if you like knock out the receptor, and then you you have like spontaneous cancer models, they won't grow as fast. The cancer won't grow as fast, and then you have like, I think you have observational evidence showing that people with high IGF one like have a, a higher rate of cancer and stuff. But like, it doesn't so. necessarily mean a person that eats some protein that produces more IGF-1 is going to end up with cancer. Right, right, yeah, especially, yeah, well, especially from the observational literature, right? Like, what is causing that higher IGF-1? Is it because they're eating more protein than they have more IGF-1, or is it a lot of other things? And so, if you're eating a lot of protein, but then, like, restricting your calories and you're, like, lean, like, does that make as much a difference? So, if you look at the, the mouse studies about this, like, the old mouse studies, like, way back from, like, the 1970s, if you give them a bunch of protein, they don't eat as much. Um, and then... And then if you, I think if you then adjust so that the body weights are the same, so they're eating the same amount of calories, there's like a, but then you keep them lean, like you keep them, they're not, the the rate of, uh, the longevity of these animals is like, there's just such a tiny, tiny difference. So there's a lot of confounders in the mouse studies. Uh, and, and, and it's unclear whether in humans this will actually make a positive impact. So he's extrapolating from a lot of really indirect evidence without looking at more direct evidence. So what we would really need for Walter Longo, especially with regard to the protein, we would need like a five-year study where you like give some people like 150 grams of protein or like, like 150 grams might be reasonable. And then you give the other group like 50 grams and then you look at like, like heart attacks and stuff like nothing has ever been done like that. Mm -hmm. So he's just speculating based on, on some, basic science evidence and it may not be true. And again, as we see with the, with the literature on what plausible mechanisms, all this stuff, most of the time things end up not being true, even like very compelling and interesting hypotheses like this. So he, he ends up then saying, okay, protein's really important. Everybody restrict your protein. Well, so there's some freaking downsides to restricting your protein too. There's some theoretical advantages that might be extremely small or neck or like nothing. Yeah. And then there's like massive downsides to like not eating enough protein, which is like higher visceral fat, probably a higher rate of like, especially if you're, if you stay lean, higher rate of like diabetes, like worse metabolic function. There's like a whole bunch of like really bad things you don't want from eating, from eliminating your protein. So what I would wonder is like, why is he taking like, why is he assuming that his speculation's right? But then all these other possible downsides are not a, a big deal. And then he's just promoting it without having the randomized controlled trials. I feel like that's really irresponsible. He might have been a really great cell biologist and really, he might be a really brilliant person, but it doesn't mean that, that it doesn't mean that he's right to be doing this kind of like protein restriction stuff based on like a really, a bunch of really weak evidence. And so I think it's really, I think it's terrible. And his fasting mimicking diet, I mean, what do you get from fasting mimicking diet? It's basically just like you're restricting calories for a while, for like five days or whatever, however long it is that they do it. Like you do 1200 at first and then you do 800 like subsequently. Right. Um, and then of course your health markers are going to get better. They're going to get like way better. Cause you're like, you know, when you strict calories, your health markers get better. Mm -hmm. So like, it doesn't mean that. And then he has these studies on the, on the cancer cells, like, like, or sorry, the immune cells. So your immune cells then die off and then they come back. And then, so like they're refreshed and they're, um, I want to say that the outcomes that he had with respect to that in his studies, like were not, 
I need to double check this and I'll, I'll put out a tweet to make sure, but I'm 99% sure like that wasn't statistically significant. And also that's theoretical. He hasn't done like autoimmunity reversal in humans. It's just theoretical based on like some animal models of autoimmunity, which have me have nothing to do with humans. So he's just making all these recommendations because probably my guess is he, is he thinks he's brilliant and he, he is right. He thinks he's brilliant. He's had a lot of success in his life. He's done really well in science. People listen to him. Um, he has he has a really good idea, and then and then he thinks that means that he should just like say, recommend it to everybody. But just because you're smart and you have a good idea and you've been successful, I mean, you're just going to follow the same footsteps of most of the other people who think the same thing and then end up being wrong. So that's what I, I mean. And then also potentially causing harm. So that's what I think for both. Though. And you you know you research a tremendous amount, so you know we could have the science kind of say like anything we want kind of like since you're since you've uh, dug so deep into these things we could take a protein powder that i sell and we can run a, a six-week study on on me and my brother and Seema and andrew in here um you know taking the protein uh you know three times a day but versus uh us like and we cannot share the previous information that we're on some sort of crap diet beforehand where we weren't consuming much protein you say look each guy gained six pounds it's this percentage of their body weight and this is what happened and you could even share the fact that like maybe my brother didn't gain any muscle in in the trial because you want to just leave that fact out and say look at you know these guys all gained tons of tons of muscle that's that's how it is that's like that's what people do they take studies like this especially if you have like your special protocol and they and they do that kind of stuff and it's terrible and that's what that's what makes me so mad and you know so yeah 100 percent. why you know why are you so frustrated with a lot of this information does it have to do with i've heard on a previous podcast you talking about your past when you were young uh i think you said from the time you were like eight yep. even even kind of trailing into like your 20s that you were uh very negatively affected by uh, some medical conditions and some just kind of hurdles that you had uh with um some uh, medical issues and stuff like that. So is, is that why you're so passionate about like, you know, really, really trying to come to the forefront and I explain to people, um, you know, some of the bullshit that's out there for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I had, I had medical, I had like medical problems, but they were like misdiagnosed and then they gave me drugs that caused more problems. And then it, it just like, there's more and more problems until I was eventually I was like, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. Right. I can't live like this on these drugs and like my, my quality of life is terrible. Right. And so I just like, I went off of them and then I was like, Oh, Oh wow. Like all, all of these things that were, were said that I had were, are not, are not actually the case. Um, what was the problem? If I can ask, if you don't want to specify. So, okay. So whenever I was, okay. So, uh, whenever I was, uh, like eight, they diagnosed me with like AD, ADHD or ADD. Mm -hmm. Um, because like I was a really good kid, but like in class and school, I would just like talk too much <laughs> so it's like you know and i still i still talk too much um so so then they were like oh he has you know he has a problem he's doing really well in his classes he's like not having any functioning issues but he like he's disruptive right mm -hmm. so then they put like they put me on ritalin mm. i did really terrible on ritalin like i was like just awful or, or and uh and then they put me on adderall and i think things even got worse like i i would like i think the way that I think about it is like at the end of the day, I would, um, I think the Adderall was keeping me from, uh, like it was suppressing my appetite, but I wasn't aware of it. So I'd be like hangry at the end of the day. 
And then I would like scream at my parents, right? Because like I'd be playing video games and I was like hangry. I was like focused on the video games. I probably was like on Adderall or something. And then like just, they'd like bother me and I'd like scream at them. And then they're like, oh, well, not only does he have ADHD, like he has bipolar disorder now. And then so they were like, oh, we need to get him something else, right? And then so they added something on top of that. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then like the problems keep keep happening with like being on the Adderall and like yelling at my parents and like all that stuff. And so they added on more stuff, like maybe he's depressed also, so we'll give him an SSRI, right? So then I was on that. And then I was like, I can't sleep anymore. And like, oh, you can't sleep anymore. So now, so oh, now, so now you, so now you, uh, you know, you're going to get on something. So I can't gain weight. So now I got something for gaining weight. I've got anxiety, got some for anxiety, got like propranol for anxiety. You've got like clonidine for, I want to say it's for gaining weight. You've got like, uh. As, like there was, it's like five, six, five or six different drugs, right? And then at that, and then, and then, and then, like things got worse, right? We kept trying to find things, and then we like tried like lithium, and I think I had either had like a toxic reaction to it, like it like literally with my the levels were wrong, so it, like screwed up something in my brain, so I like had like a like a delirium, right? So I'd like hallucinate and things like that, wow. and then I, and then they said, oh, you're 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 bipolar, you have mania, you have like a psychotic episode from your a mental illness. So they, the, the things that the drugs were causing that they said, they said it was like a mental illness. Jeez. And then, uh, and then after that, and then they put me on like antipsychotics, right? Mm -hmm. Like stuff that you give like schizophrenic people who like hear voices in their heads and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. And then I was on that. And then like being on antipsychotics is the worst. And at some point I was just like, I can't do this. And so I was just like, we're not going to do this anymore. So I started like cheeking everything, you know, like not taking my meds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then showing my parents, like trying and showing my parents, like, I'm not, I'm not going to like cause problems. And then, and then I did that. And then, so like, that was at about 16 years old, whenever that ended. And then I was like, it's sort of like, I was like living again for the first time, like after, you know, all that, all that time, uh, cut. Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrible. And then, so then after, after that, I started thinking like, I hated modern, I hated medicine because I thought doctors were, um, were morons i thought that like they didn't know what they're talking about and um maybe they even cause people a lot of problems they don't get they don't care about the root causes of disease yeah so then i got really into like alternative stuff right like um like a lot of the stuff that we're talking about i've been really excited about i've been really excited about like keto and a lot, a lot of stuff and i thought that um this is the real way to health i was actually thinking about being a doctor because i was like thinking i wanted to change the system with respect to psychiatry because i thought like people need to be helped and it's terrible what this did in my case. So, uh, but then along the way I got into food and all these other things. And then I thought that doctors were wrong about all of those other things in the same way that they're wrong about psychiatry. So they're wrong about like diabetes, they're wrong about heart disease, all these other things. So I was always going after like the alternative explanations for everything because I thought doctors were just wrong about everything. And I, I was just opposed to everything, but there were, yeah. and then through that, and that was actually uh, all the way through like the early part of med school. And then I started getting more into science and I started thinking more about also, I was just so familiar with it. And I was like learning about all the different approaches and stuff. And I started thinking about like, how do we actually make sense of everything in a way that, in a way that's systematic and like, what is actually correct in this area? And then I started criticizing more of the alternative stuff. And then what I've, what I've come to believe now is like the alternative stuff, a lot of the alternative stuff is just as bad like Merkula and stuff, whatever, like Merkula, Merkula? like Joseph Merkula. He, he's like a, he's probably like one of the biggest uh, alternative med people. He has like stuff like, you know, he has stuff on his website, like, like quantum healing. And there's, there's all sorts of other stuff like that, but there's also, it's like semi-legitimate stuff. There's like 
whether it's like legitimate, whatever you want to think, but like vitamin D, but like, I started to think these guys were just as bad because they're peddling a lot of stuff. That's just as much bullshit. And that's going to hurt people too. And so that, that, yeah, it all ties back to that. I'm really concerned about what's actually true and what's not. And I don't want people to get hurt. And want people to have good, be able to make good decisions and be empowered to make good decisions and not basically be hurt by somebody who has their own self-interest as as the priority. So that, yeah, yes. And, you know, all these diets, they they can help if you're able to follow them, right? Like, and they can, um, but we don't really know all the health implications of each diet. Like, we don't know necessarily, you know, if like a keto diet might work great for one person. Uh, but potentially it might cause some harm to maybe another, even if they are following it correctly. Do you, do you kind of believe that? Like, do you believe that there's maybe some, you know, different diets um, that could potentially help people with their, with their health and, and things like that. And there's some that could be harmful to people, even if they don't overeat. Yeah, for sure. I think there's trade-offs in, in a lot of these diets that I think different individuals will fit better with. So for example, uh, keto, uh, I've done keto a few times. I'm like doing keto now. Um, was it like, are, are you doing a plant-based keto I'm doing right like now? a plant-based, I'm like eating like a bird. Yeah. I'm like eating nuts and almonds oh, and stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, like taking some protein powder as well. And then also some fish as mm-hmm. well. Um, but, uh, in general, I don't eat like a whole lot of like red meat or whatever. Um, we could talk about that later if you want to, but yeah, for now I'm doing like a plant-based keto. Uh, Chris is sending me, uh, s- some of the Piedmontese though. I'm going to, I'm going to try that out. Woo! Um, <laughs> uh, So, uh, yeah, so I'm doing mostly a plant-based keto and, um, what I've noticed from keto, like times I've done, the first time I did like a carnivore style keto mm-hmm. and then I did a plant-based and then I'm doing like plant-based again, partly cause I was going on this podcast. I was so nervous. Like, I was so freaking, I know you're looking at me. You're like, why would you be nervous? <laughs> like, I don't know. It's like, I see, I, cause I see you guys in person. You guys flew me out here. I felt like obligated to try to give you the best information possible. Uh-huh. And I really wanted to do that. I didn't want to screw it up. So I was like really nervous. And, uh, and I also have like a committee, PhD committee meeting coming up in a little bit. I was nervous about that. So, um, so like I always notice that whenever I go on keto and as you guys have talked about before, like it levels you off a lot. It like things smooth, things get a lot, things get smoother, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and I've noticed that before and I'm noticing it again. Right. So I, I was trying to think, see if maybe the anxiety would help. I, I made a joke to one of my friends. I was like, I, you know, I'll, I'll just solve my problems with keto. You know, and then, and then she, we, she, she, like, she laughed and then I was like, oh, maybe I was going to do that. So then I, so then I'm like going to solve my problems with keto. So that's what, so I decided to do that. Um, but, uh, but the thing, the interesting thing about it is though, is that whenever I go on keto for like a long period of time, even though it mellows me out, um, if I go on it long enough, like three months, I start to get like, I start to like lose motivation. I start to become like, I don't know if you ever heard something like that before, but I start to become maybe like too mellowed out. <laughs> you know, like I like don't want to I like don't want to do anything, you know, well, I think, you know, um, switching to any uh, sw- switching from one intervention to another. I think you always end up with like that honeymoon period. So, like, I've noticed yeah. myself anytime I go back to a ketogenic diet, I love it. And I'm like, why don't I just always stay on this? Yeah. But like you said, um, you know, it starts to kind of uh, just maybe not have the same impact after a little while. Um, what I've noticed from carnivore and keto is sometimes you go in so hard that you're like on the diet so much and you don't allow for anything else. You don't allow for any like fun or, you know, entertaining foods. Um, 
it just gets to be boring and monotonous and you kind of get depressed from it. Yeah. You're like, man, this kind of sucks. Like, cause, because it's a little maybe too forced. And I think that's where uh, yeah. over the years I've recognized like, hey, man, if you're just craving something, just go eat it. Like, get it over with. Just get it out of the way. Because for me, personally, like, I... I can't just shift the craving off and, and it, and it will completely pass. Like it'll, it'll be there for a while. So now I'm like, okay, well let's just kind of pick a day to like go eat that crap and I'll just get it over with. And now I, I eat a lot less of what I, you know, you, I used to like really go way overboard mm. and now I'm a lot more reasonable with it. You know, I can just eat a couple slices of pizza and be okay rather than eating like, you know, three giant pizzas or something like that. So, so you're becoming like a flexible diet, dieting, like Lane Norton fan, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> very much so now I, you know I, I we've had lane on the show a bunch of times and um we always uh you know we always like going back and forth with him on stuff but um i i have kind of mentioned before that if people are going to track anything they should track when they eat when they go off <laughs> when they go off plan you know rather than tracking so mm. diligently mm. when they're on plan mm. i think but most of the time people just that's the time where they want to relax and they want to kind of, you know, ease off and back way off, but they're not accounting for the fact that they just consumed, you know, 3000 calories or something like that. That's so true. Like it's when you go off plan, that's when, when the problems happen. Like why yeah. track the yeah, chicken yeah. and broccoli? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So, so yeah, I think that diets have their advantages and disadvantages. I think some people might like that restriction more though, right? Some people might like that discipline that they have. Some people might like dig it. Some people may, might be into it. Like they like restricting themselves like they're that kind of person which is i i see the appeal of that sometimes and for sure i think we're all to some extent that kind of person but there's some people who are more like more really that kind of person mm-hmm. and um and then some people who are not and so like and i think that there's there might be psychological effects there's certainly even immune effects of different diets they immunomodulate you differently um and then so maybe your individual differences like the way that you are the way that modulates you uh works for you and then for other people, it doesn't. And I think that's certainly the case. I do think that, that there are some aspects of like dietary physiology, nutritional physiology that are like pretty universal. And I think that's probably calorie density is one of them. Mm-hmm. A lot of protein staying in calorie balance. I mean, that's just like an obvious thing, but getting enough sleep is good. Those are, and those are, and you guys asked me at the beginning, like what I thought, those are basically the, the only things I think are we really super solid about for, uh, for nutrition. But, um, yeah, I think those things are, are roughly universal. Um, and then the rest, there might be some individual differences that uh, that might affect like how well or not well you respond to the diet. But I also think people are, can be close-minded too. Like they can say, oh, individual differences. I tried this diet, right? And it solved my problems. And I'm not going to like switch to some other different thing to like question and see if maybe that could also play an impact. So I heard, I think it was... Uh, Joe Joe Rogan was with maybe like Elon Musk. He's talking mm-hmm. about Elon Musk. He's talking about Rob Wolf. How he was like, was he reintroducing like milk? And then he was oh, like, yeah. mm-hmm. he's like okay with milk now, right? Uh, milk proteins now. And then I think the explanation came. I don't know what this is with Elon Musk. I'm not sure, but the explanation given was like the microbiome might have changed. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk, I can't remember. But um, yeah, and so and so a lot of people think, oh, this is just me. But they sometimes if you try something else, and you can actually see. Especially if you're like advocating for something, you know, like you should try everything to see. Yeah, Rob you know? Wolf has changed uh, his uh, observations and his information a lot over the years, and I think that's the most important thing is that you do have a little bit of a bend in there somewhere. Because um, even from a scientific standpoint, to just uh, 
push off anything that's not scientific. That doesn't really make sense either, because part of the reason why you part of the reason people are in science is to even disprove their own beliefs. Right. And to try to come to better explanations um, and to try to get closer to the truth all the time. That's really, really what the goal is. And I I admire uh, Rob Wolf. I think him and a, a few others have done a decent job of of at least you know, admitting like, hey, you know, I said all this stuff. I was very anti-carb and now he was anti-carb because he was sick. You know, he had a lot of medical issues and he just, for him personally at the time, he wasn't really able to eat those things. Now he's adapted, he's healthier, um, and he's able to eat those things now. Yeah. Were you about to say something? No. I mean... I was going to ask this, uh, Lane Norton, um, you know, he comes up all the time and people will on the internet, people will at him a lot, you know, and they'll say like, oh, like wait till Lane gets a hold of this, you know, why, why do you think Lane Norton has become a, uh, an authority figure in that sense? Like when somebody says something about like keto or somebody says something about carnivore, somebody just says something in particular that might be maybe, uh, maybe almost a little bit too much of like an absolute. Why do you think they look to Lane Norton for that? Well, I think first off Lane is like, he always looks jacked in his photos. So I think like that all, all especially like among young people. Like I remember when I first started like learning about this stuff, anybody who was like not jacked and like a little bit skinny or like maybe a little bit like fat, I would think, Oh no, they don't know what they're talking about. Like if they can't figure it out for themselves, like I'm, I'm not, I'm going to listen to the jacked dude. He, he like, at least I know he knows what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's part of it. Of course, it has nothing. I mean, when you see somebody who's got, who's a high performer, of course, you know, like they know how to apply it, of course, at least for themselves, or they could just be a freak. It could just be genetically. I think genetics make a big difference in that too, mm-hmm. you know? So like, it's a little unfair with, with, uh, with that. But anyway, like, at least, you know, whenever somebody's like jacked, but you don't know if somebody who's like not in shape, you don't know if they're necessarily don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You could. And even somebody who is in shape, they could know what to do but not know what they're talking about okay but anyway so lane he looks big that's the first thing he's loud so yes. everybody knows he's gonna he's gonna push back he's on very things. compassionate yeah <laughs> he, gets, he gets fired up for sure <laughs> and uh he has a phd right yeah. and then so he and then he plays that role he's like i'm the one who's gonna like he's the moderation guy that's like his brand right so like that's why you know and i've and i and i i think lane's pretty cool that's why like uh um yeah lane, lane lane is awesome uh and i yeah yeah you connect with his message pretty well like you agree with a lot of what he says um yeah uh yeah and he tries to be science-based he tries to like criticize himself he tries to like not he tries to like boil things down to the bare essentials of of the facts rather than adding a bunch of extra theories on top of it so in that sense like me and him are very similar mm-hmm. that's the thing though it's like um, when I was just like first getting into a lot of this stuff in my early twenties, I was Lane was one of the main people that I paid attention mm. to. Lane, Lyle McDonald, um, yep. like all of their stuff. But I found that I was being very, very close minded to a lot of other protocols yes. because of it. Yes. Um, and then when I started trying things that like were in direct, I guess, competition to what like Helms and all those guys were saying, and it worked. Then it started getting me like wondering, I wonder what else could like, yeah, what else that, you know, they say this like fasting or whatever, what else could be pretty beneficial for myself? 
You know what I mean? That's why I think that like I I like what Lane puts forward because it's going to work for a lot of people, but I also I'm not a fan of it that much just because a lot of it just does seem very close minded. Okay. Yeah. That's the problem I have nowadays. Like I'm now like open to a lot of different things and even if it kind of sounds kind of wild, I'm just like, well, let's give that shit a shot, see what happens, right? Yeah. If if I see some benefit to it like for for like for me personally and for what I see from a lot of people that apply fasting with a lot of other good protocols like eating enough protein, eating enough food. Yeah. It changes their personal habits towards food. It's not like there's fasting magic, but like it changes their actions, it changes the way they look at food and the way they act in response to hunger, etc. because they learn certain habits as far as that, right? So that's the main issue that I have with a lot of this. So what have you learned from fasting that, that has been beneficial to you? For me personally, totally end of one, me. Um, I was someone who could, I could eat a lot, right? And even when, because I've done bodybuilding shows and I've done, like, I've tracked my macros. I've had certain numbers. I, had, I ate whole food. Um, it, for me, it was just, like, difficult at the end of the day, even though my numbers were hit. When I got another wave of hunger, it was just hard for me with my personality at the time to say no. One of the big things that has helped me in terms of utilizing some fasting was getting used to feeling hungry and not responding to it by having to go grab food because I did that so often. Like most people, when they get hungry, they're like, okay, I got to grab something to eat. I got to get something to eat. I got to get something to eat. I don't do that anymore. Nor do I even feel the need, but I still have... I make sure I have a certain amount of protein I hit in my day. I don't fast every single day, but I fast for quite a few days of the week. I still have a certain amount of food I eat, certain amount of protein I eat. My performance isn't affected. I feel pretty great. Um, and it's not so, like doing a fasted weight training re- workout or going into jujitsu fasted years ago before I started doing it. I think that's absolutely insane that I wouldn't be able to perform, mm. performing at a very high level. And again, it's in total contrast to what I would have thought would have worked. If someone told me that this could work for me or anybody um back in 2015 i'd be like uh you're fucking insane that that makes absolutely no sense but in terms of applying it i was able to see these personal benefits and i've been able to see other people that it's had those benefits too so i'm just like okay it depends on the individual maybe and how they apply it it's not as black and white as some people are putting it So, but you still fast regularly. Yes. Does, yeah. does it to like to give you the discipline back or to no, not even to or to restrict the calories again? So that, does that, that make like, it easier for me? If I were to every single day eat throughout the day, uh-huh. I will put away a lot of food. Yeah. When I start Got eating it. like when, when I start eating, um, it's like if I have a breakfast a few hours later, I'm going to get another way yeah. and I'm going to feel hungrier. Sure. And it's going to be harder for me if I actually wanted to restrict. It's not as easy to restrict Got it. because I can put down a lot of food, yep. but it's harder for me to do that in a window. I don't, and again, I don't fast every single day. If a friend wants to get breakfast, I'll get breakfast and whatever, eat throughout the day. But I found that it has given me more control from a mental aspect over my own feelings of hunger. Um, I don't feel that like for some individuals, a lot of people aren't necessarily, uh, I guess, they're not used to not responding to feelings of hunger. Most people, that's a big issue. And that's why sometimes just tracking eating throughout the day and having multiple small meals doesn't work. It does, but it's hard because like they're going through their day, they're eating these Uh. small meals and they want to just eat more and more as the day goes by. I've seen that happen for some individuals. Not that fasting is the answer for them, like, but that has happened to me. That that happens to people. That's super interesting. It's almost like um, 
forgot what I was going to say. Um, I utilize similar protocol. Like I think both of us have kind of learned some similar things. Um, maybe it's because of our like bias towards certain styles of nutrition, but we've had particular guests on the show that have kind of led us to uh, a little bit of intermittent fasting, a little bit more of a meat-based uh, diet. But um, I'm definitely open to the fact that like you can – you can do whatever's going to get you through the day as long as you're not going to overeat. And I think as long as you're not going to overeat. If you yeah. have the same amount of calories, same amount of protein, what you don't like, there's no need to fast. It's not going to do something crazy. But for me, I just noticed that on the habit side of things on the, like, the I way- like what you said about training too. Like you're not, it, it changed for him. It changed his mindset and it changed my mindset too, of like thinking like I have to eat these particular pre-workout foods oh, yeah. or my workout's going to suck. And then when you did work out fasted, like the workout did suck. Cause you're like, I knew it was going to suck. And you were just all up in your own head that you yeah. didn't have enough energy or strength for the workout. Uh-huh. Yeah. And which wasn't the case, but you were about to say something. Oh yeah. So I just wonder maybe if, if you look at the studies, maybe if the issue, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people already know this, but like, I wonder if the issue is, is like that fasting is easier and maybe it's achieved similar weight loss, but like fasting is an easier way to do it. And if that's the case, like that's important to know. So it's, it's a really interesting hearing your story because maybe even though the studies show similar weight loss, it could just be like the free, people who are doing continuous restriction were just like white knuckling it and miserable. So, I've done, but that's the thing I've done both. Like, yeah, like yeah, I, yeah, I've yeah. done multiple meals I've cut, I've gotten very, very, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done the same thing. And, and I hear know. you, I yeah. hear you. I've, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like sometimes mm-hmm. fasting is you just don't eat. And then you're not like, whenever you eat, you're not like, Oh, I can only eat like two eggs. And you're like, you're like depressed about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, you just there, don't eat. And then you just go about your day and then you eat and then you eat enough. And you're like not depressed when you eat. You know, well, there are some, there is some research on decision-making and cutting down your choices and how important that can be in a particular day because you only have so many good choices that you're going to probably make in a given day and the day will wear you down. And so if food is not really, I guess eating, like not eating is a choice too in some sense, but it does simplify things. Like what are you going to eat at work today? You're going to be at work for eight hours. What are you going to eat? I'm not going to eat anything. I'm going to wait till I get home. Like that's a simpler message. And then when you get home, yeah, maybe you can eat a little bit more in those one or two meals that you have, uh, and you're not going to. You're still not going to be over your overall energy intake for the day. You'll still be, um, you know, at maintenance or in a slight, uh, slightly under where you, where you should be, and you can continue to be healthy or continue to lose a little bit of weight. So th- this this whole whole discussion is super interesting because maybe somebody like Lane, he might look at these continuous calorie restriction studies or whatever compared to intermittent fasting and say, oh, well, there's no difference. But if we actually have these nuances at play and we actually like, maybe if we design studies, see, that's the thing is like sometimes the studies are designed in a very unintelligent way so that you can't actually pull out some of these effects that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's one reason why... It's one reason why you need to be skeptical of me and Lane Norton. You just can't listen to all (laughs) that we say because sometimes we're just too dependent on science. Um... (laughs) (laughs) that's great you know one of the one of the things that we've been uh super happy about in sharing messages with people is a lot of times someone will come to us they're super excited they lost 20 pounds or 80 pounds or 100 pounds almost every single time they come to us and say hey you know i lost this weight and it wasn't that hard and I think that that's the most important thing in trying to get these messages out there. Like, what are some, what's some simple shit we can get people to do? 
I don't know what the science shows about like walking, but I do know it's movement. I do know it's exercise. I do know that pretty much anybody can participate in it. So I'm going to tell you to walk a couple times a day because I think that's effective. Uh, who possesses the ability to not eat? Everybody, right? It's inclusive. Everyone can do it. It's it's not a choice to eat meat. It's not a religious thing. It's not anything against uh, uh, animals or anything. It's just you just don't eat. And even just even just sharing with somebody like, hey, you know, it it's it appears, you know, you're you're 100 pounds overweight. It appears that you've had an issue with overeating for a long time. Let's figure out a way for you to introduce some under eating in some sense. And uh Let's just maybe skip breakfast and let's maybe have your meat, have your food for the day be done about two or three hours before bed. And by the time you eat at 11 or 12 o'clock every day, you'll have fasted for a good amount of hours. Let's not really worry about how many hours it is because I don't think there's anything inherently great about that necessarily. Let's have you go from eating five times a day. I think I think there was some uh, information I saw a while back where. It said the average American ate like 11 times a day, <laughs> consumed calories 11 times a day, which is crazy. Goddamn. So what, what if you were just, a, I don't know, just how about just let's just be reasonable and let's not like try to kill your life. But can we cut that in half? You know, can we, can we knock that down to five times or four times and, and just come up with some, what are just some more reasonable things we can do? Can we, you know, and then we know what lifting weights can do. And I, I don't want to always push people into lifting weights. I understand not everyone loves it, but building up some muscle mass can really be beneficial. And so if we can walk and we can do a little bit of fasting, if we can eat a gram of protein per pound of body weight in whatever style of protein that you can, uh, maybe we'll find some ways for you to eat less uh, each day and, and get through every day without just the message for me is just don't be fat, you know, just don't be fucking fat, like figure out a way <laughs> to get through every single day without overeating. Yep. Try yep. to keep it that simple. Yep. That's going to be like the main thing, th- main thing. One of the interesting things that I think I've taken away from this is that maybe uh, maybe there might be different effects of fasting versus continuous restriction or whatever else in people who are more motivated. So like people who are super motivated who really want it and they're trying things and like maybe they're just miserable doing the eating like five times a day, but then they try fasting and because they're motivated, they can do fasting. But um. But whereas if you take everybody, maybe a lot of people are just not going to want to do fasting. Oh, for you sure. know, yeah. so maybe that's why you might see like less strong effects of some of these other because because maybe if you could have like a study that only included people who are really motivated or I, more motivated. I, I agree with you, but I would also say that everyone intermittently eats, you yeah. know, like we all have pauses from the day. And that's why that's why I think, again, like walking or lifting or great things or jujitsu. Yeah. Like you're not eating a sandwich when you're doing jujitsu, I would imagine. Right. Like these, <laughs> these are these are more opportunities for you to not eat. You know, these are more um, whereas like sitting down at the end of the day and watching a movie or something like that. These are opportunities to overconsume calories. And so how do we just kind of continue to push yeah. things in front of people that add to their life that also make it more difficult for them to keep stuff in their face? <laughs> Probably more people would be doing jujitsu if you could eat a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah, yeah it'd be great. It's like, yeah, a really good sandwich shop idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a grilled cheese sandwich or something. Mm-hmm. Come, come do jujitsu and get a free sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> but I think you know what you were mentioning about those nuances, right? And how like they're not mentioned in the research. Because when I when when I talk to a lot of people, um, a lot of people that do that practice do notice those change in their daily habits. You know what I mean? They, they notice those changes in their decision making when it does come to food and and how strong of an urge that they feel like 
when you do get the feeling of hunger, that's one big thing that I've noticed with a lot of individuals, not myself. It's like, I don't feel that I actually have to respond to that feeling of hunger anymore. Now, imagine if everybody could kind of feel that way when it comes to dieting, right? Where they're hungry, but they're like, I don't want to eat. I don't have to eat right now. So let's just not eat, right? That would make it easier for some people. And you could, you don't need to fast to maybe see that benefit. Some people don't need to go as far as fasting to get that benefit from dieting, right? Maybe it is just having just a time that you're going to eat during the day. I'm going to eat breakfast. I'm going to eat lunch. I'm going to eat dinner. These are the only times during the day I'm going to eat. Maybe they could control themselves in that way. It would have a very similar effect. Um, but I think people are just yeah. also in different places in their life too, you know? And so for Encima or for myself or some other people, uh, that have been able to incorporate some fasting, like you're mentioning, like, man, like maybe not everyone, like a lot of people would think that would be really, really challenging yeah. to implement any sort of fasting. Um, and so maybe you do need to be like kind of, uh, far along in your dieting career mm. to, uh, be able to implement, uh, some of these, uh, protocols. But I do think like just, just messing with it just for a day, yeah. just to see what it's like. And then also too, I, I don't really know the information on this, but it does appear that if you can get yourself away from some of the sugary stuff from the carbohydrates and some of the processed foods, I should say, uh, that fasting seems to be a little easier, uh, operating mainly, uh, you know, eating fat and, uh, protein. It just seems to be because, because mm. now the conversation isn't necessarily just fasting. The conversation is also like, okay, I'm not going to eat throughout the day. And my first meal of the day is going to be some steak. You know, that, that's going to be the, and when you have that opportunity to actually eat, you're eating something that you feel, it, it, at least it's like kind of my belief that is very nutritious for yourself. And it's an actual like full meal. And so for, I think for, I, for Nsima and I, when we see like snacks and we see little things, we're enticed by them just like everybody else. But I think a lot of times we're just like, not nah, like around two or three o'clock or whenever you get home from jujitsu or however you do it. Uh, I'm going to have an opportunity to like sit down and actually just like maul a bunch of food. And that's going to be amazing. And so I will sacrifice that for now, even though it seems great to like eat, eat this protein bar or engage in what everyone else is doing, but I'm willing to sacrifice it now for the payoff later on because fasting while fasting is kind of great in some sense and feels good in some sense, it's not so much the fasting. It's the first meal that you get when you're done fasting. Um, yeah, anything that people can do to r reduce their calorie intake is good. And fat, if fasting helps them, that's, that's good Yeah, for sure. One thing that I've heard, uh, Lane Norton go absolute bonkers and, uh, he calls out Thomas DeLauer a, oh. a lot when it comes to fasting. But at any time he, Thomas says the word autophagy, Lane goes fucking ape shit. Uh, your 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 thoughts His on eyes twinkling. autophagy? <laughs> I got some serious autophagy going on right now. I'm gonna that's, yeah. that grows on your foot, right? Or yeah. that's something else? <laughs> um, yeah, I have some notes here. Um, nice. I I hate autophagy so much. Like, <laughs> it's like. <laughs> I feel like he's going to like freestyle or rap about it right now. Like Eminem, Eminem. drop the mic. I will, I'll play a beat. <laughs> uh, um, okay. What is, what is, what does Thomas DeLauer say about autophagy? And see, we got to help me out here. 
Well, pretty much it's just like cell recycling. So pretty much you'll, you know, old cells are going to kind of rejuvenate. That's the whole essence. And it, it, he says that when fasting, like he, like autophagy happens all day long, every single day. But if you do prolonged fasts, that that process speeds up. That's, that's the only message that he has about autophagy. Um, not that you, you know, it only happens when fasting It's just a faster. That's what he says. That's what I think a lot of these individuals say. So cool. So I think one way that we're starting to see eye to eye on some things, or at least we can see each other, or I can see, like, I can see that like science doesn't, we, we are starting to have some consensus about, um, when things work, you know, use them. And of course I've always said that, but a lot of things that you guys say about how fasting helps you, I'm going to, I'm going to listen, of course, like, yeah. I believe, I believe that it's like, of course, here's the thing though, about autophagy, autophagy isn't something that, um, before I talk about it, I'm just going to introduce autophagy is not something that's just working for you. You don't know how much autophagy you're, you're having. So it's not like, I can't be like, oh, well, it's working for you. So I, I accept it. It's like autophagy is this whole other thing that people are kind of making up. So <laughs> first thing calorie restricting versus fasting what reduces autophagy more like overall what reduces autophagy I mean, more what induces i guess it induces autophagy more okay and 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 the answer to that is i don't think we know mm-hmm. we know that calorie restriction causes autophagy to go up also yeah what about after you're done fasting and you start eating does autophagy go down again like back down so what's the overall amount of autophagy that you're getting in, in fasting versus calorie restriction do we even know we don't even have we don't have any animal studies even telling us that. Yeah. Um, or we might have like a couple. And then some of the ones that I'm familiar with, like I've been familiar with is like suggest that maybe collar restriction cause more autophagy, but it might be the case that um, like compared to fasting, it might be the case that like the, the, the mice weren't eating equal calories. So even though the fasted mouse was fasting, it was still eating more overall calories. It could have been like, I haven't looked at these studies, but okay. I know that there's no firm understanding. And if anything, maybe there's more of a, for 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 calorie restriction although that's really weak evidence so like that's the first thing okay. is like why do you need to fast to have autophagy it's like i don't think we even know that and so why are you promoting fasting for autophagy that's like the first the first thing second thing is like um we don't know that like autophagy is the reason you're having these benefits from fasting like if you knock out autophagy in animal models and in like the lab yeah you're gonna lose benefit from fasting but that might be because you're first off, you're screwing up a lot of other things because autophagy is essential for like just normal functioning. If you knock out autophagy in the brain, you don't have autophagy, you have like, you get uh, dementia, like mm. the, the, the mice will, the brains will uh, deteriorate quickly and they'll, they'll, their brain aging will be much faster, Oy. even if they're just fed normally. Right. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is that autophagy just might be one essential ingredient ingredient among like 20 different essential ingredients. So just because you're increasing autophagy doesn't mean that you're. Not that you even know that you're increasing autophagy mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you're increasing longevity. So why are you even talking about like you want to increase your autophagy by fasting that you don't even know that it's causing more autophagy than calorie restriction and other forms of calorie restriction. And uh, we don't even know that that's really the reason you're getting longevity benefits from, from fasting real quick. So uh-huh. then where are some of these people that are saying that when you're fasting, you're increasing your rate of autophagy in that segment, where are they getting their information for that? You, they are increasing the rate of autophagy when you're, when you fast, right. Okay. Compared to like, compared to 
just eating ad lib, lib like if you're a mouse gotcha. and you're just eating okay. chow all the t- all day long and you mm-hmm. fast and you acute you'll see an acute increase in autophagy got it right so mm-hmm. that's where they're getting it from but like we don't know that as as far as i know we don't know that that that's better than it cause yes. more autophagy overall than just restricting those mice's mouse's calories it. i think a lot of times we don't even know like somebody might have made autophagy sound fancy yes. and sound like a good idea but then what are the repercussions of like there's always like a give and take of the human body and so uh us you know having more new cells or something i'm sure maybe it's great for the moment but maybe it's not great to do that often and who who really knows yeah no totally it could and it, yeah it could be that even if you do increase autophagy exactly as you even if you do increase autophagy this is giving me this other idea like you might also be causing other things bad to happen so you might get more autophagy well the other thing about autophagy is autophagy uh cancer cancer upregulates autophagy so maybe you're like, you're probably not helping cancer cells, but maybe you're helping cancer cells, or maybe you're killing good cells, some good cells that you don't even, you know, that you don't want to kill. Well, of course, you're going to probably lose some muscle. Like there's downsides too. Um, the other thing is, is, is when you calorie restrict mice, a, a large, a substantial proportion of mouse strains, they actually like live less long. They die earlier. Mm, like, okay. so just because you're increasing your autophagy and just because you're maybe increasing your chances of living longer doesn't mean you're necessarily increasing your longevity. And if you go really extreme, like there's some people who are like jacked and they're like ripped and, and like they're in great shape. They're a great cardiovascular shape. Then they're adding like long fat, like five day fasts onto that. Like, I don't even know if that's necessarily necessarily even doing them good just because a mouse study of a fat mouse that you that you you take the food away for 24 hours which by the way taking the food away from a mouse for 24 hours is like taking a food away from like a human for like two weeks so it's like you're almost killing this mouse mm-hmm. and then you're saying oh like it's going to be the, like it's going to be the same for me it's like totally different in so many different ways yeah. sorry totally different in so many ways so like that so yes it's basically some dude's like oh a nobel prize was won with this word autophagy autophagy sounds cool as hell right self-eating that's like it's like sounds like a, a metal band right it sounds like a really it's like really cool and so of course you use that and that and then that's and then you can, like a, a you can make <laughs> a you can make a you can make a religion out of it and that's what they're doing right it's like autophagy is like the the fasting god right <laughs> Autophagy is the fasting god. He's I the came final here to boss. heal you. And yes, he came, yes, exactly. So the god is entering you and healing you from within. So that's that's that. It's the it's the fasting god, and and it's just as religious and just as not. It's totally yeah. It's and it is. It's it's like their god. So can uh, we uh, can we fight off insulin resistance through fasting? Like I think that's Jason Fung's uh, drum that he beats all the time. Is that fasting can kind of uh almost reverse diabetes do you think there's any truth or any evidence of that awesome um so so what we know from a study called direct and it was published like 2018 Mm -hmm. they gave people um and, and i promise this is gonna be relevant they gave people 800 calorie shakes they were diabetics obese diabetics they gave them 800 calorie shakes and they gave them like coaching and stuff. They helped them. And this is kind of along the lines of what you're talking about. Like once you're given, like I'm only allowed to eat this, you know, it's very black and white. They adhered really well. Um, among the people who I think it was like, they lost like 10 kilograms or maybe 15 kilograms Ooh. among those people. And that's not even that much, right? If you're obese, like 15 kilograms, like that's 30 true. pounds, it's yeah. not, you know, 
there was like an 86% remission in diabetes, right? And so what they looked at is they looked at the liver fat, they looked at the pancreatic fat, and those are basically, the idea is is that fat in those organs, those are organs that uh, regulate your blood glucose and a lot of other things, but that's what's causing the diabetes or according to some of the main theories, that's one of the main centers of what's causing diabetes. Mm -hmm. They're losing fat quickly especially at the beginning of that process, the beginning of weight loss, they're losing fat from those organs and that causes the reversal of their diabetes. The idea is, and it it correlated with how much weight. So the people who lost like 15 kilograms had like an 80% remission. People lost like 10 kilograms had like 50, 60, and then it was like dose response. So like down to like five kilograms is like 30%. Mm -hmm. So the more weight you lose, the better. Yeah. And so that's really the thing. It's like he's fasting people and he's causing them to lose weight. And because he's causing them to lose weight, um, they're losing their visceral fat and they're reversing their diabetes. And you can do that on any diet. And most, Yeah, so most likely if you were to fast and you reach this magical number of 16 or 18 hours of fasting every day, if you still overate, you most likely wouldn't be reversing anything. If you fast for 16 or 18 hours? And you still overeat. Yeah, it's still on a surplus can you Can you do that? Yeah. Yeah. You probably can with like, yeah. Oh, yeah, you, you can. can. Yeah. You can <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, if you eat junk food, yeah, you can figure it out real quick. Yeah. 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 It's hard, yeah. but it's possible. I've done it. Yeah. If you're not losing weight, uh, you're not going to reverse your diabetes. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the weight loss that's doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, sugar doesn't cause diabetes, I think is something I've seen you talk about before. What What is the madness behind that? This is, this is, so I, I was, um, because I, uh, because my plane, my all that plane stuff, it was a six, 14 hour flight that should have been four hours. I didn't have a chance to like, I was, I was just listening to your guys' podcast. And so we're, we're going to call some more names out. And he can correct me if, if he thinks I'm wrong here. I've looked into this over and over. I can never find anything on that. I don't know where people get this. Benjamin Bickman said, like, he said that he, <laughs> he said that if you eat carbs by causing insulin to go up, then you. Oh, then you over time cause your cells to become less responsive to insulin. Cool. I think there is some evidence to support this idea that hyperinsulinemia can cause insulin resistance. Uh, there's a, a really famous, there's a really famous paper by Barbara Corky. It's not that important, but like still the main, the main consensus is that that's one thing. So, so Maybe genetically that's the case that that that's the case, and maybe in some experimental models that's the case, and maybe even overall that's the case. But whenever you look at humans, even uh, and you keep them in a in a caloric isocalorically, you're, they're not gaining weight. Um, whenever you feed them high carbs over and over again, it actually increases their insulin sensitivity. Um, it's like fuel switching. So whenever you go on a ketogenic diet, you actually become less able to process the carbohydrate. Your blood mm-hmm. glucose spikes are much higher whenever you cheat. Mm-hmm. That's because you're, you actually fuel switch. Your body's become more accustomed to burning carbohydrate or more accustomed to burning fat. So your body actually gets better at burning glucose. You actually become more insulin sensitive as you actually decrease the amount of fat. It, it depends upon how you're measuring insulin sensitivity, and this gets a little technical, mm-hmm. but if we just talk about it in terms of eating a glucose me- a meal with carbohydrate in it, whenever you eat more carbohydrate, you're better able to handle that, and you need less insulin to get the, the glucose into your body. 
that's that's one thing. So ba- basics of that principle would be that if you discontinue eating carbohydrates for a long time, you may be a little more inefficient at processing them. Per- perhaps you, you certain. It's not even. I think it's not even. Perhaps it's absolutely the case, but. That'll come back in like a week or two. Yeah, All I got to do is eat carbs a little bit for a week or two. It comes back. And a lot of times uh, people that are on low carb diets, their fasted blood glucose will be higher than somebody that is just fasted regular that eats carbohydrates just, just under normal healthy conditions, right? I, I've heard this and I've seen people talk about this. I haven't been able to find any evidence for this, but I've heard this all the time. Right, I don't right. know exactly um, uh, about... So, so, so you want to avoid gaining weight. And if you avoid gaining weight, especially if you avoid gaining visceral fat, so you want to, you want to maintain your physical activity, you want mm-hmm. to maintain your protein intake, you keep, keep the same weight, you can eat a lot of carbs, you're not going to cause insulin resistance and diabetes in yourself unless you have some sort of metabolic fat processing thing that's going on. It's not related to your cells becoming more or less insulin sensitive. It's related to what's going on in the liver, maybe even in the muscle, the fat that's in those tissues. That's what's going to cause your insulin resistance, not having more insulin. There is some evidence along those lines and that that's interesting, but it's not um, in the human studies, the actual human studies. I don't know if anybody's ever shown. I don't think anybody's ever shown that, like feeding people a lot of carbs for a long period of time, keeping the, the, the same weight, and then you look at their visceral fat. I don't think anybody's ever shown if, like if everything remains the same that you're going to get diabetes. Now, if you get more visceral fat, so if you're eating a lot of processed, uh, especially like sugar, right? Sugar is um, especially free sugar. So, so, so not just sugar in like an apple or whatever, but like sugar at, in like a, a soft drink is the mm-hmm. worst. That can cause fatty liver or contribute to fatty liver without you getting fat i believe so um there are people and i thought this was a cl- close shut and shut and, i thought this was a definite thing for sure uh and i've seen several studies that have shown this in my opinion very clearly um but there's another there's a couple other people who i respect who think differently but i I'm, i need to talk that out with them my i, I believe that's that is the case certainly uh i could but i could be wrong like nine like one but I've seen many, I don't know. So there's some people who believe different. Uh, I think those people are wrong. I think that's a scientific discussion to have. But I, um, so, 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 so I will say that not gaining weight and eating a bunch of sugar free, like soft drink stuff, you can actually, but it has nothing to do with what the cells are doing. It has to do with what's going on in your, in your liver and your pancreas. Yeah. And it, and it also causes a whole bunch of other things like refined sugars, like soft drinks are terrible for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. Before we, you know, I guess found sugar and processed it you know sugar is a plant so i'm sure in some regards it's not necessarily all bad but um did diabetes even exist type 2 diabetes did like do we even know if it was around or like when was it discovered and like i'd imagine without processed foods like type 2 diabetes just really wouldn't uh, just from my understanding of it and my understanding could be way off but uh i would just not really know why it would be a thing if uh people were eating foods that weren't processed yeah um so i think i think diabetes was first reported in like the the western medical literature not like not like uh there's different kinds of diabetes there's another kind of diabetes called like diabetes insipidus which is not related to to insulin and all that stuff it's a different uh cause that was reported a long time ago i want to say that 
I want to say that diabetes, like, I want to say that type two diabetes was like first reported like in like only about like 500 years ago in the West, but it was reported like thousands of years ago in like in, in India. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Is sugar causing diabetes? There is some, there is some correlation. I don't think it's like the cause of diabetes for sure. I think overweight is the cause of diabetes. I think, okay, here's, here's how I think it's, I think it's fair what you're saying. Like basically if sugar was wiped off the planet, there would still be people that would probably end up with diabetes, although it'd be a lot less. It would be a lot less. So, yeah. yeah, So here, and then, okay. The other thing is, is like sugar can actually maybe even cause you to gain weight itself. So there's, there's two factors in whether or not you get diabetes, two factors. First factors is your, um, your overall weight. And as you gain weight, your visceral fat will increase. Mm -hmm. And this is the main factor. If you look at the, if you look at the, this actually been studied by Kevin Hall. He looked at the correlation between total fat, body fat, and then visceral fat. And it was like, it's, it's not super tight, but it's somewhat tight. And that looseness and that correlation between the two may be in part. These are the other things that modulate it. So you can be, uh, you can gain a lot of fat, but then also still maybe not have diabetes or genetics is a big thing, of course. Yeah. But then the other, the other things are physical activity because that burns off visceral fat. Things like sugar intake, like high sugar intake, high processed carbohydrate intake. So those two things interact together. The total body fat and the, and the, uh, the, uh, the composition of the diet. One thing that also may reduce visceral fat is like the opposite of sugar. And people don't want to hear this. This is like the truth. This is like, it's been shown over and over again. Is like, it's like vegetable oils. Vegetable oils, if you eat them isocalorically, if you don't overeat them, of course, you might want to overeat just about them. to ask you about that. Right. Yeah. Then your actual visceral fat will go down and you might be improving your metabolic function, kind of the opposite of sugar. So two things, dietary composition and total body fatness is going to determine. And then plus your genetics. Genetics is enormous. Mm-hmm. It's going to determine your diabetes uh, risk. Because some, Okay, so the last thing, genetics. So body fatness determines your visceral fat can be modulated by diet. Genetics determines uh, two things. Um, well, it turns a lot of things, but like how, basically how susceptible you are to visceral fat. We'll leave it there. Yeah. So, so vegetable oils are demonized massively through a lot of the low carb community, keto, et cetera. A lot of the individuals on this quack list, um, not a big fan of vegetable oils, right? Mm. Seed oils, et cetera. So, um, what, what is your take on that in terms of like their negativity or their bias towards being negative on it? Um, Do they even have a reason to actually really have any negativity towards I, it? I feel like this is more autophagy type stuff. Um, in my <laughs> opinion, I mean, I think the reason to be, okay, so let's take it from their point of view. Like why, I mean, why they, why what they say makes sense according to how I understand, I can understand it. Yeah. Of course there's either they have other arguments, but like the, the most reasonable way to understand it, in my opinion, would be that adding oils causes more energy intake. So it's just like what we were talking about. Like you can have like the sesame oil in the whole foods and you're going to, you're going to, it's not going to be good. And then what might happen is you might like start your, your joints might start hurting. You might have these autoimmune stuff, but that's like being driven by your weight gain. Okay. So that's like that thing. But then if you look at the actual literature on like inflammation, if you look at like cholesterol, if you look at freaking everything we know about vegetables, if you look at fatty liver, you look at everything we know about vegetable oils in terms Mm -hmm. of what we know about and then you look at the epidemiology, right? Okay. Uh, and then I need to actually say something 
about that real quick. But then if you look at the epidemiology, the epidemiology is, is uh, people who consume more vegetable oils, even though vegetables are a proxy for almost processed food, their, their heart, their heart outcomes are better. They have lower rate of heart attacks and stuff. It's not like healthy people are. I don't think healthy people gen, generally like add a lot of vegetable oils to things. I think it's like marker of processed food. I don't think it's a healthy user, user bias type thing. Mm-hmm. So like all of that evidence. Okay. So, but some people could say to me like, oh, what about the randomized control trials? Well, nutrition's different than other like supplements and all that stuff because nutrition, you have to eat, you have to t- decide what you're going to eat. Um, so if you just look at the available evidence, there's nothing. Now, there's some animal studies that suggest that if you feed vegetable animals oils to like mice and stuff, you can cause cancer, like corn oil. But mice immune systems are very different from human immune systems. They don't even like omegas. Like three, they get inflammation from like a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. vegetables. We don't get any inflammation. We've seen this in, in randomized control trials. We don't have any inflammation. We might even have a reduction in inflammation. Yeah. So there's no there's no reason in the studies. And there's okay. So Benjamin Bickman says like he has these studies where he shows these byproducts of vegetable oils like in the brain and stuff or something like that i needed to look at that but like that's like a that's like one biomarker for something and we don't even know what that means uh if we knew that robustly correlated with health outcomes then maybe but he's just like assuming that that makes a difference so everything that we know and even ldl oxygen like there's so many different ways that vegetables are better than like a lot of other things especially vegetables that have like or have like a lot of antioxidants in them like Canola oil might have some oil. Olive oil is good, right? Um, I know it's not a vegetable oil, yeah. but like, I don't think there's any ba- like basis at all. I think this is crazy. I think it's just totally crazy. Like uh, Nina Teicholz really likes to talk, to talk stuff about vegetables. I don't think she knows where she gets it from. I do think that if you like fry like burgers and stuff in vegetable oils, like if you do it for like ten hours straight, of course you're going to oxidize those oils and make you know you don't want to you don't want to eat those. I mean, or, or, maybe, um, maybe you do, but are even antioxidants a thing? Like I've heard those kind of even be dispelled a little bit before. So there's something called like the free radical theory of aging. It goes back to like 1960s and 70s. It's like not considered true anymore. Yeah. It's not considered like the main thing. And people thought that like you got free radicals, so you need to reduce the free radicals by quenching them with antioxidants. But then people have done just tons and tons of randomized control trials. Vitamin E is a really great example. They thought that would do it. Mm-hmm. And then like, no, like there's no, like there's like literally like 30 or 40 different randomized control trials for like heart disease and antioxidants. And like, there's nothing, there's no signal, no effect whatsoever. So anybody says, oh, it's high in antioxidants. You just know that's like, that's another autophagy. So autophagy, seed oils, antioxidants, those are all like the same. It's like, there's no, it's not where the science is today. Yeah. So, so you don't think people need to be going out of their way to get rid of vegetable oils just obviously don't have an insane amount where you're going in a surplus of calories look i don't eat vegetable oils so to be like honest about it like i don't eat vegetable oils um is there a reason or you just don't yeah why would i add those calories gotcha okay yeah i mean i'm why would i have a salad and then like four calories on a salad like why am i going to do that to myself right. it's like yeah. i don't hate myself <laughs> um <laughs> but, a lot, but a large portion of the food that's in in the grocery store has vegetable oil yeah in it. yeah so you probably get some in right here and there just by eating yeah. a snack or whatever yeah yeah some, right, okay. i mean sometimes uh um yeah because because once i got it once i learned about laying stuff and tracking calories i started getting really excited about like i could eat whatever i wanted that was so awesome. I started eating pop tarts all the time. I was like, yeah, my macros. I've I'm done just, it. <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, I, I don't want to add calories, but I will say this. If I have a choice to to what to cook with, mm-hmm. right? Am I going to cook with, um, 
butter or am I going to cook with olive oil or avocado oil or even canola oil? Of course, you want to cook it a long time. But if I want to cook, choose, I would always choose the oils over the butter. Because um, so in those cases, yes. In those cases where I, where I kind of have to do it, yes, I would I would definitely choose those. Um, but in general, I would not advise people to eat a lot of refined foods at all. You're just going to make, you're just going to get fat. So like in that sense, but then people make all this ideology again. It's like, it's like autophagy. Mm -hmm. It's like the God, they make all this ideology around it because they want to have like kind of a a religion and a theology. And they're like, they have all these rules and all these ideas about why this does it. No, it's just, you don't want to eat too many calories. But if you tell people that they don't want, they can't follow their religion. (laughs) And they and the person who the guru can't be like the priest. They so the can. priest has to make up a bunch of things around this that has nothing to do with anything at all to 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 persuade people to 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 not eat seed oils. Just I don't know. I don't want to be a priest. I'm just telling you, just don't eat too many calories. Seed oils are, cal- are calories. That's all. Yeah, they can't follow their religion to the point where they're telling you that sugar is bad, processed foods are bad, but then they're telling you to use uh olive oil on your salad and you're like well that's a processed food as well and that might lead me to end up and people huh. think that olives yeah. have like yeah, some yeah, sort yeah. of magic powers yeah, yeah. Or, or that uh avocados have some sort of uh, i i don't really that's interesting i don't really believe there's any sort of uh magical component to any foods necessarily um i actually think that just figuring out a way to get through each and every day without overeating <laughs> is is the main thing that's going to assist us the best and even with that there's no guarantees because of our genetics and maybe just the way that we respond to even certain foods within the confines of keeping our calories in check yeah yeah and and of course there's probably so many different things about individual differences and even just seed oils and anything in general that we're talking about that we don't know so that's that's the caveat here we don't know a lot of things but at least i can tell you what we do and don't know and as far as what we don't know we don't know all of these weird things about people say about seed oils Are, is there seem to be some sort of uh, major benefit of, of vegetables uh to any degree or even fiber i would say you know i'm i've almost like i've almost i'm almost converted to like the carnivore point of view on this um if there is a benefit of vegetables especially like the green vegetables especially like sulforaphane or whatever uh that's scary I don't think that that's like a good thing. Like imagine you have like a compound that like extends your life and like prevents cancer, does all these things. And we have no idea like what the long-term effects are or whatever. Like, and it doesn't even necessarily prevent cancer. Like we don't like say you have something like drug, like a food that's drug, like, and, and in order to get it, you have to like find broccoli sprouts and grow them at the exact right time in like mass and eat them every day. Nobody ever in nature ever did that ever to eat them and then get these drug-like effects, I would say, like, be really careful about that. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's, like, not good. So anything that, any kind of, like, phytochemical and new, phytonutrient that people say that is good yeah. from, like, from like vegetables, I would be, I would be like, oh, like, I wouldn't want to eat a vegetable from that. You know, for the same reason Saladino says. Um, because even if, yeah, because for, for every drug, there's always a downside. And if you have a drug-like effect, you have a potential downside. So the five, but I don't think if you eat vegetables in moderation, it's a problem, right? Yeah. And then also, because um, we have detoxification systems, mm-hmm. right? The, and can I rant a little bit about the Sal- Saladino argument about like why you shouldn't yes, eat sir. plants? Okay, so Saladino says like, he says like plants have poisons, right? And therefore, uh, since they're going to poison us, we shouldn't eat them. And then also like animals have everything we need, mm-hmm. right? Okay, cool. But then how do you propose that all the animals in the animal kingdom should eat? Should they all be eating steak? 
Should even the herbivores who are obligate, like obligate herbivores who don't eat anything except for plants, who eat toxic plants all the time, should they be eating steak because the plants are toxic? It doesn't make any sense. Because actually, if you do feed those animals just steak, like they will, they'll, they'll die. They'll like yeah. get deformities and stuff and they'll die. So the question is, is like, yes, they have toxins in them. The question is, can humans detoxify them or not? If we can, good. If not, that's not good. We need to know that. We need mm-hmm. to think and ask that question. But we can't assume just because they're toxins, they're going to poison us, right? You guys, you guys look like you already know all this stuff. So, um, <laughs> no, I was going to say is that, um, so I don't know, for example, I think they say that spinach has like oxalates in it or something like that. Yeah. And then I think people look at that as being bad. Yeah. As like this oxalate is something really awful for our bodies. Uh, you, we hear all the time that it causes inflammation and we hear it just, it's just a lot of it just seems to be nonsense. And yeah. I don't think anyone really knows like oxalates could potentially be bad. They could potentially be harmful, but maybe there's probably a good side to them. It seems like there's like a yin and a yang of every fucking thing that's on this planet. And for some reason, we never seem to like hold that message and understand that, that there's like a good and bad to every single situation. And so just because your body might have to fight off something that's potentially in a plant, that doesn't mean that it's bad. Yeah. If it's causing, obviously if it's causing health issues, if you're eating it and you're like, you're like getting crippling, you know, joint pain, you're not like going to be like, Oh, I should keep eating this because it's supposed to be good for me. Like you obviously stop eating it and try it. Mm -hmm. If you think that you have these autoimmune issues, try, try like, I don't, I have said to my friend who has ankylosing spondylitis, I said, try carnivore diet, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not actually a perfect elimination diet because actually uh, bread meat does have antigens too and it can f- cause autoimmune flare-ups just like other things can, but it does eliminate almost everything. Yeah. And then, and then you have a night. So it's, it's great. And so if you do that, it works awesome, super awesome for you. And then make sure like after you've gained your, like if you've lost a bunch of weight after that, you can actually try some plants and see if it causes it to come back. If it does stay off of it, that's cool. But like, um, for most people, there's no evidence whatsoever that, that like oxalates is a problem. And you mentioned about fiber. Fiber is great, right? Bulky foods that have fiber and low calories. They're going to fill you up. That's Mm -hmm. what caught that energy density thing. That means it's going to help with weight, weight loss. And there's evidence for that. So, and we know it, of course, like you eat a big salad before, you know, yeah. So. Do you, you yourself, you said that you were um, doing this plant-based keto, but in general, do you uh, avoid red, like, do you not eat much red meat? Because I think I heard you say something like that as we were talking, and I was just curious what, like, your diet generally looks like. Are there things you avoid, things that you don't? Yeah, um, hmm. So, so for red meat, uh, so there's a few things. First, the first thing is, like, I'm not a vegan, I don't care about and we and i don't care about uh i don't think there's this whole thing of like we shouldn't we should avoid killing animals because it's like it's like mean and they have like i mean of course like it's not a nice thing to do to kill an animal but like <laughs> they kill themselves too they kill themselves. yeah we we get it you're you're good right I so you. right i don't have to defend it to, to, to you guys okay um the one thing maybe so there's a few aspects of red meat that bother me a little bit about the science the first thing is the saturated fat and the ldl cholesterol there's an association between that and cardiovascular disease of course there's some recent reviews that suggest that whatever and that's a whole other discussion we could do that if you want but that that's a concern to me the other thing is maybe the heme iron in the the red meat and of course that's cause oxidation all these other things maybe increase your colon cancer risk maybe 
you get too much heme iron in the blood, then you over time increase your cardiovascular disease risk. Mm-hmm. You, so that, those are the th- those are like the health reasons. Um, and then I guess like the environmental reason would be like, uh, well, like emissions and all that stuff. Yeah. I, I'm not against eating red meat. I'm not. It's not something that I. Um, it's not something that I, I'll eat a steak, but and I don't think about it a lot. I don't worry about it. Like, and I will, I will occasionally eat some red meat, but I just don't tend to to do it. Do you I'm, think there's like a potential problem with overconsumption of it? Um, yeah, may, yeah maybe, maybe. Uh, I think maybe the saturated fat content, maybe the heme iron content is is uh, has maybe detrimental effects. Gotcha. Uh, and there's some evidence in the epidemiological literature that that's the case. I don't think that's and that's that's one motivation for me not not doing it although mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of course like a lot of nutrients and all this stuff and i eat like liver like carnivore aurelius sent me some beef liver that i i, I don't like it it tastes like crap who wants to eat that it's t- terrible it tastes pretty good. but he like <laughs> no, he likes it because he likes doing things that that feel terrible <laughs> <laughs> i've eaten liver since i was a kid man i'm used to it <laughs> yeah. i'm used to that shit uh so yeah but if a carnivore diet can assist someone to drop some lbs Sure. Then maybe yeah, for sure. Maybe it's healthy. For sure, hundred percent. Um hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially and okay, so I will say this, like if you have h- slightly higher LDL from saturated fat, let's say, but then you're like really improving your health in every other way, you're probably gonna be like way more healthy mm-hmm. and way less risk of disease and way better off. So if that's the way you do it, cool. The only thing I would say is like and if you're gonna do the red meat approach, like try to mitigate some of the risks. So one of the things that I think is really cool, and I was telling Chris, like I think a couple of days ago, I was like, I'm gonna be a Piedmontese beef shill on the podcast, and so give me my hundred dollars after this is over. I'm, I guess I'm cheap. Um, <laughs> but one of the really cool things about that though is like it is low in fat, yeah, and it is low in saturated fat. It's like almost pure protein, and that's like really good. Not, not only is that good for like the whole saturated fat thing, but that's also really good for like weight loss. That's awesome because it's just pure protein. It's pure bulk. It's like a, it's like a meat salad, you know? So uh, that's awesome. The one thing about, I like that. Yeah, that's, that was good. That's, it's like a meat Meat salad. salad. Noted. Um, the one thing I would say is the heme iron though. So if you're going to eat it, maybe eat it with like, uh, like people always, okay. People say stuff about beans. They're like, Oh, (laughs) beans, like they're going to, they're, they have, uh, like lectins and and uh, what are the what is the phytates and stuff and they're gonna it's gonna sequester all the all the minerals and you're not gonna absorb your minerals and you're gonna have you're being nutrient deficient like you've, mm-hmm. you guys heard that kind of thing yeah. before yeah I haven't that's cool <laughs> okay mm-hmm. uh, but one of the interesting things is maybe sometimes that's good right like let's say if you're getting too much iron mm-hmm. right if and you don't you don't need too much iron right there's too much such a thing as too much of everything maybe you could eat like beans along with your uh, with your uh with your with your meat and that actually will take up some of the heme iron and reduce maybe some of the effects of that so i would say you know uh maybe couple it with some plants and that might be helpful unless you have like an autoimmune problem don't worry about it but that's that would be the one thing yeah about red meat and uh yeah okay yeah i would just add um piedmontese.com promo code power project (laughs) for 25 percent off and if your order is 99 dollars or more you get free two-day shipping and and I want to be like completely like straightforward about this. Like, of course, if you do a carnivore, you're probably gonna it's probably gonna be great. Like you're probably gonna lose a lot of weight. Like I'm not gonna say you you, you it doesn't work. I'm just saying like there's potential health things and um, there's other ways to do it. And 
Um, but it's like a really straightforward way to do it. You don't have to know anything. You just like do it. Yeah. And you just adhere to it. And then you're like, it's great. So it's hard to argue with that. And that's one of the things that's like almost makes me feel a little bit guilty with arguing with people sometimes. Cause if they are helping people and if that does help, then, you know, I just want people to have the facts. That's all. So anyway, gotcha. uh, what about cholesterol? Um, that comes up a lot when people are going against the carnivore diet. We've heard carnivores mention that maybe we're putting too much weight on it, but I would really like to hear your take on whether or not they are putting too much weight on it or not enough. And also, can you, can you also maybe talk about in that in context with individuals who are healthy, who have mm. high levels? Sure. Um, so let let me ask you guys like an anecdotal question before I talk about this. Have you guys ever been on a statin? Anybody? Have you? No, no, no. no. I was thinking about like trying it, like just to see like how it feels. Cause a lot of people say that when they go on statins, like they feel terrible or they feel muscle pain and there's a whole discussion there. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was just, just curious cause I want to know where people are coming from. And then I, I like, if somebody had, then I would like to hear that, but okay. Turns out no, but like, okay. So as far as cholesterol, um, the main thing, as people know, is like LDL cholesterol is like the main thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <sighs> dietary cholesterol is not a, as much of a problem. If you already eat a lot of dietary cholesterol, then basically most of the cholesterol increases come from just starting to eat cholesterol. So if you're a vegan and you start to eat some cholesterol, it's your, it's going to spike your LDL up substantially. But if you're already eating a lot, it's not going to change anything. So, or if you're just an omnivore, it's not going to change it. So you don't have to worry about dietary cholesterol. So saturated fats, really the driver. And then not even just that, but like a whole overall dietary pattern, like the lean mass hyper responder. So say your cholesterol is spiking like 500. That's like the, that's like the question or even just substantially higher than the recommendate the, the guidelines. Yeah. Okay. So like a, above 160 or hundred, if you're, if you have a, a risk, um, yeah, it causes heart disease. So. LDL cholesterol is causal in heart disease. If you have higher levels of LDL cholesterol, there's a dose response relationship between that and heart disease. Mm -hmm. Now, um, if you only have LDL cholesterol elevation, you have no family history, no diabetes, no high blood pressure. um, Your other lipids check out pretty okay, like your triglycerides and things like that. Everything. Yeah. You're lean, you no obesity, no smoking, all that stuff. Everything's tight. Like you, 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 you'll, uh, according to the evidence that we have, You'll have a modest increase, maybe like twofold increase. But what does that mean? Twofold increase, twofold compared to everything being perfect. What is perfect? Perfect is like less than 1% chance. It's like really tiny. And I need to go take out a calculator, look at this. There's a, there are calculators, but it's like a minuscule chance of getting a heart attack in like the next 10 years or five or 10 years or whatever. And then you double that to like, I don't know, from 0.2 to to 0.5 or something percent or something like that. So that's what you're dealing with. Whenever you have all these other things, each risk factor synergizes with the other risk factors. Mm-hmm. So let's say it, it increases your chance of having a heart attack by three times to have high blood cholesterol, right? And let's say that you have uh, smoking, which also increases it by threefold. You're not adding them together and getting a sixfold increase. You're adding them together and getting a ninefold increase. They multiply. Mm-hmm. So you have nothing wrong and you're starting from baseline. You barely increase it by much, but each additional risk factor causes more of a problem. So if you have a family history, I would be worried if you have, and if you have like one or two other metabolic problems, I'd be worried if you don't have anything at all, you have to make the, you have to ask yourself the question. Um, no family history, none of these other problems. Um, do I want to like 
do something slightly different to 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 really make a tiny decrease in risk if you already have by the way just to let people know because i I read this all the time i have like some of my i have i have like many friends who are like kind of moles in the low carb mailing (laughs) groups so i know what these people talk about look like if your patient has super high cholesterol and like they have heart disease history like you should be really worried about that like be like be cautious if you don't have a history of heart disease if you haven't had a heart attack or something it's a totally different story and yeah the risk is low but if you have like a history and then you're doing all these things and then you have like a high cac scan all this stuff you should be seriously worried about that so please if you have like other risk factors and you have some concern like you should be cautious and and take that seriously and statins aren't as bad as people say they are we could talk about that but yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's it's important to talk about. So we uh, need vitamin D three to be healthy, D3, healthy, and to have uh, a strong, yes. powerful immune system. So, <laughs> so this is really cool because I was going to come on here and trash vitamin D completely, but I like looked into it even more. So, all right, <laughs> <laughs> let's fuel up for this one. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> I'll drink to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. We have shots for you to do, right? We need shots. Yeah, we, by the end yeah. that would be that would be hilarious. By the end, oh, we damn, that. Makers of I think we've done it before. We have five hundred. Yeah, once. Um, so vitamin D, you need to be healthy. I won't. I won't. Do you want me to like? Go, I'll just. Yeah, just let, let's just talk about uh, supplemental vitamin D, um, and maybe even just like how this came to be. And do you think uh, there's any dangers? to utilizing d3 because i think there's a lot of people doing it we've promoted it on this show we talk about it on this show and i may have uh, misspoken I, I, don't, I don't really know what the research says um so it's actually like the whole vitamin d field is super interesting so um it's produced in the skin originally it's transformed into the by the liver into its storage form so you may have heard of 25 hydroxy vitamin d mm-hmm. that's what circulates in the blood it's bound to these proteins called vitamin d binding proteins and that's like the storage form that's what they're testing in the lab that thing that's been converted by the liver into that and then it's activated in the kidneys and this thing that gets activated in the kidneys is like two it's like 125 uh hi, like hydroxy vitamin d or whatever it's like two anyway it's not important but it's like transforming the kidneys and then it that goes to the bone and then it helps to mineralize the bone. Um, originally, it was discovered in the context of rickets, so people would get rickets, right? Like, when you're growing, uh, like, like your bones don't form properly, you get, like, bow-legged, and it's, it's not good. So you're, um, so they, they had to figure out what caused that, so they figured out that it's, like, it's vitamin D. It's the original discovery. And so that's what all the recommendations are based on, how to pr- prevent rickets. And so what the controversy is about is over, I think especially started in, like, the 2000s with this guy named Hollick. He's a scientist from Boston University. He was in the Department of Dermatology. But anyway, he was, he wrote some articles in the 2000s. And actually, there's a lot of people who are running articles, even like people at Harvard, like Walter Willett. Many people on this podcast might hate Walter Willett because uh, <laughs> he likes vegetable oils. But um, there was a lot of really cool stuff, like a really cool observational evidence, really cool animal studies, cell culture studies, and uh, some suggestion that vitamin D might be useful for all sorts of other things like heart disease, cancer, um, depression, uh, uh, of course, fractures uh, in old age. And so there was this whole idea that maybe the old 
lower deficiency levels, which is about 10 nanograms per milliliter, maybe up to 20. I think it, maybe it was 20 at the time. Um, maybe those need to be modified. Actually, I think it's 10 even now, and 20 is adequacy for, from the Institute of Medicine. But okay, but that needed to be changed. And so what the Endocrine Society did is Hollick published a bunch of papers, and he was writing books, like popular books, about why you need to get tested and have vitamin D. And they're very hypey, popular books. And so he chaired the, the task force in the Endocrine Society in 2011. Uh, and then he had the, the, the guidelines changed from the Endocrine Society. And now adequacy is like 30 nanograms per milliliter. It's based on that. And then still, and then not only that is like, we've done a whole bunch of research since then randomized control trials. Cause we want to test whether in randomized control trials, you give people vitamin D, give people placebo. What is, what happens to their outcomes? Mm-hmm. And over like the last 10 years, especially we've done a lot and we're still doing a few more that are some big trials that are coming out. Um, to test these things. And so there's a lot of promise, but then we actually have to test it. So, um, so there's been a lot of really inconsistent findings in the randomized control trials, but it might be because of how often they're dosing vitamin D. There's a lot of other design issues that might explain some of that. Yeah. However, there's a recent trial called vital. And I think that's, I want to say that that comes from Harvard. I think so. Anyway, it's called Vital, and they do it the right way. They gave 2,000 international units of vitamin D to everybody. Uh, They also, like, analyze people for their, like, what are their outcomes if they're low at the beginning and all that other stuff. And they look at, they looked at everything. They looked at heart disease. They looked at cancer. They looked at uh, depression. They looked at a lot of different things, fracture risk. What they found is they found no impact on heart disease risk. They found no impact on depression. They found no impact on uh, overall... Okay, so there's basically no impact on most of the outcomes. And I'll also talk about respiratory illness in a second, because that's another interesting area. But what they did find an impact on is cancer. Some of the other trials dosed vitamin D differently, and that might have been why they didn't find an, an effect of, of cancer. And, and the reason is this. The reason that they don't know how to design the trials the right way is we don't really understand the biology that well. While we're doing the trials, we're, we're actually learning about the biology of how vitamin D works. Mm-hmm. So there is a signal in that trial vital. There's a really, really, really strong signal for anti-cancer, anti-cancer death risk, like like 40% decreased risk mm. over like, I think it's either, I think it's five years, it could be five or 10 years. I think it's a five-year trial, about 40% decreased risk among people who have a low BMI. So if you're lean and it doesn't depend on baseline risk, or sorry, baseline vitamin D levels. So if you're normal vitamin D, 30 mil, nanograms per milliliter, um, you take a, a 2000 IU per day supplement, you have a decrease in, in, uh, in, in risk if you're, if you're lean. If you're obese, there's no signal. And if you're overweight, it's in between. Okay. Okay. Uh, and the reason might be because of just how vitamin D is metabolized. And that's currently, there's research that's currently ongoing to try to, to, try to tease that out. But if it's true, and I'm assuming it's true, so for myself, for myself personally, I, I, I was like anti-vitamin D up to like, like up till a couple of days ago of reading of reading of going really deep into the to, to the vital study um i personally would take like 2000 like almost no matter what 2000 international units per day no matter what that that said like for most outcomes there's like nothing there's no signal anywhere for for most outcomes respiratory illness like covid all right so there is an old meta-analysis that was done on this that suggested that there could be an effect but the, it was really poor quality studies 
they had another meta-analysis where they add like 20 more studies. And it was published like last year. It's not yet published. It's in preprint. And it's by a guy who's really a big, a big guy in the field. Uh, and it showed, again, a robust effect on respiratory illness. And so now there's like about 50 trials going on for, for uh, vitamin D and COVID. Mm-hmm. And like big ones, like prevention trials, like 4,000, 5,000 people think there's one at Harvard it's called Vivid. It's called it's for like thirty six hundred people, and basically what they do is they dose people's relatives who have gotten COVID or, or are about to get something like that. So they try to prevent people from getting COVID, and they they're trying to see if that works. And there's a bunch of other designs that, to like see that. Yeah. So we'll have a good idea about how that works this year. Cool. Whether it prevents COVID and with really good designs. Um. So, but so far there's no signal for COVID. All the 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 studies that people have tweeted about online on the internet on Twitter, all this stuff. It's, uh, it's, those studies have been terrible. And so like, um, the ones that shouldn't have really positive effect, they're just not, they're not good studies. So they're not, I don't think we can say anything yet about COVID, but there's some potential promise there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I think v- vitamin D is not bad. I don't think you need to take it to your, to like, I don't need you think you need 50 nanograms per milliliter. I don't need, you need 60. I think if you have a normal vitamin D level, uh, supplementing like 2000, I use, is good. Okay, so let's talk about the potential risks. The obvious, most most obvious risk is most vitamin D supplements do not contain the amount of vitamin D you think it does. They don't. Like the the majority. Uh, like in India, it's like none. Like in India, like none of the supplements contain the right amount of vitamin D. And like here, it's like I want to say it's like it's either thirty or sixty percent don't contain that amount of vitamin D. Yeah. I think there's some brands that are good, like Thorn Research or whatever, like mm-hmm. which Ron Patrick likes. But um, I would be careful about like a store brand. Uh, it's probably not gonna be like super different. Okay. But that said, like that's, that's one issue. Yeah. You could mess up whatever. Let's talk about like, if you don't mess up. So there's this one study that looked at bone mineral density. Uh, I think it was like, they weren't elderly. I think they were healthy people. They looked, they gave them 4,000, sorry, 400, 4,000 and 10,000. I use a vitamin D. Okay. They looked at, they did bone density. They looked at their bone density and they found a dose response relationship between vitamin D dosing and less bone density. They really? low, they reduce their bone density. This is a short term trial. So there was a, there was a, a, sorry, there was a robust dose response relationship and it, it, it didn't depend on, I want to say it didn't depend on BMI. It didn't depend on anything. It was just, or baseline, nothing. Yeah. It, you, you got a dose. <clears throat> so, um, they then measured strength, the strength of the bones. They have like a test, um, like a tibia strength test or whatever. They didn't find any difference. So maybe it's not a big deal, but maybe over time, like over 15, 20 years, you'd start to see a difference. The thing is, is that it does take, it does, vitamin D does pull calcium from the bones sometimes. Um, it's a really complicated hormone and, but it does pull calcium from the bones and it can. And so in these higher doses, like 4,000 IUs, um, you might have a decrease in bone mineral density that might over time add up to a a problem. So that would be why I would say personally, why I would be like, I'm a little more hesitant about 4,000 I use and a little more bullish about like 2000 or 1000 for myself, because I don't, I don't know what, uh, what, what, uh, I don't know which, which way things are going to go. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the trade off there. It's kind of tough issue. I would, I wouldn't do 4,000 or more personally, the, but but I will say this. So since you guys and since many people listening to podcasts like do weight training, right? That in itself might completely like obviate that. So yeah. like that might be such a stimulus that it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. So and that's it. Like I because I know I've, I've had, I you guys have had dexes. I know when I had dexes, like it's super dense. It's not gonna 
So this small dose of vitamin D might not affect you. So that would be the one caveat. So maybe you shouldn't worry as much about too much for, in, in your case, in that, in that particular instance. The last thing I'll say is this. Vitamin D is profoundly immunomodulatory, so it changes uh, how the immune system functions in maybe a really important way. And that's why it's a little promising, some of these studies. And that's why cancer and, and, and infectious disease might be uh, to the areas that it could help the most because immune system is involved. That said, ask yourself this question. Why should your immune function depend on how much sunlight you're getting? Like that's, that's me to me, like one of the big, really weird questions about vitamin D. Why is more necessarily better? Maybe you're getting lower vitamin D and your immune system is changing for a reason. Maybe in situations in the past, whenever there wasn't as much sunlight, maybe you're adapting and, and your immune system is adapting to different kinds of, uh, pathogens. Maybe like during the winter, you're going to experience different pathogens than during the summer. Mm-hmm. And so during the winter, you want your immune system to behave one way. And during the summer, you want your immune system to behave a different way. And so what I'm suggesting is there might be, and we don't know at all what this is, but there might be some downsides of having high vitamin D all the time too. All year long. Yeah. yeah there might be some kinds of pathogens that could be made worse. We have z- absolutely zero data, but I would be very, but it's like the one thing that bothers me. Like if it's this hormone that's responsive to the sun, and the sun changes seasonally and it changes with all this other stuff. Like, is it necessarily good to have it up all the time? Mm. And, and we just have zero data about, about that, but it yeah. doesn't seem, it doesn't seem there's too bad. The only thing we know that's bad about it so far is like maybe a loss of bone marrow density, the consequence of which we still aren't even sure what that would be, but there's also some really great promise. So that would be my vitamin D uh, thing. It's uh you know, I, I wonder, it's, it seems like, uh, you know, when they test people's vitamin D levels and they say, so, you know, this person has low vitamin D, um, a lot of times it's a person that maybe is a little bit unhealthy, but that doesn't necessarily mean taking the supplement yes. is going to all of a sudden make them a healthy yep. person. Whereas somebody else that goes to a doctor that has decent vitamin D levels that is healthy, um, you know, may, maybe trying to get the response naturally is is the best way to try to go about doing things in terms of like ketones and, and any of these other things like you know, drinking a bottle of ketones is one thing, but having your body go through the actual act of producing ketones uh, is a very natural thing for your body to go through. And it uh, most certainly has benefits. Our body does it all the time, even when you're not on a ketogenic diet. So I think uh, just trying to maybe get people to, you know, get proper amounts of rest and sleep and to get out in the sunlight and whatever else can help promote just natural vitamin D seems to make a lot of sense. Whereas just upping it and having your, uh, your blood vitamin D levels at 80 because you took it artificially probably doesn't necessarily really mean anything, or, or at least we just don't know yet. It, yeah. It might, it might not mean anything. It might be harmful. Um, I, yes. And that's the problem with epidemiological research, observational research. You guys have had people on here all the time. It's like sometimes the people, um, the reason vitamin D is just might be associated with good outcomes is just because of people who are healthier are going to do better. So people with low vitamin D may, may be unhealthy, so they're dying from COVID more. That might be the link. It's not, yeah, completely, 100%. What type of um, supplementation do you see being put forward? Do you think it's just like along with like maybe vitamin D? Is there anything else that you've seen that you're just like, uh, maybe? Fish oil more recently, right? I like fish oil. Um, there, The evidence is like mixed and there's still controversy about fish oil, but it's like one of those things like vitamin D that might be, that might have a benefit. And I would mm-hmm. say, yeah, fish oil is not bad. Uh, maybe whole fish might be better. Um, uh, of course, like creatine, right? Yeah. And that's even good, maybe even for your brain, not yeah. necessarily even just for your muscles, it's for like for everything. 
Uh, told you. 20 grams a day. Right, that's it, yeah. Do you guys do 20 grams a day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even... <laughs> I, 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 do, I do 10, because... because well, okay. What is, what am I getting myself no, into? You're not no, getting no, no, your, no, no. We, we were being silly on another video, and people didn't think we were being silly. Yeah, there's <laughs> just some claims that we've made that we're not sure are true or not. Um, but we can't go too deep into it. Yeah, yeah. Ten grams is good if you're bigger. Okay. So. Any other any other supplements? <sighs> I I like because I'm like superstitious. I'll take like half a multivitamin a day. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's making any difference. I know that doesn't affect mortality or anything, but yeah. maybe it'll make me feel better. I don't know. When you've seen like, you know, when you talked about how like most of these studies should be done as RCTs. Yeah. When you, when you see like a lot of the nutritional epidemiology yes. that goes on, right. Um, you see like Paul Sal, you know, talk about how it's, it, it's a lot of it's kind of BS. What do you feel about how a majority of nutrition research is done? Because even people that are not on the quack list still use a lot of these studies as part of proof for what they're talking about. Right. So do you believe that a lot of studies just need to be thrown out and redone or what, like what's your take on that? Cool. So um, I think epidemiology has a place and it's the place is, is to give us more information and give us an idea of how to run a randomized control trial. There is an exception to this though. So l- let me explain real quick. Randomized, we, I've already explained why randomized control trials are necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, there are situations in which even in like medicine and maybe even it might be a little less black and white in this respect, but it's in general as a principle, the only time you, you want, you want to not care if there's an RCT or not. And and you go by epidemiology, go by mechanistic um, thinking, whatever. The only time you'd ever want to do that is if the situation is dire. So let's say somebody ha- has like a, a kid has a congenital heart defect, right? And the kid's getting like, he's blue. He comes out blue. Uh, uh, he's just been born and you got to decide what to do. There's no randomized controlled trial on, on repairing this congenital heart defect, but you know what the heart defect is. You know how the heart works and you know how to do a surgery to, to repair it and to close it up. And so now this kid's going to live. Like, what do you do? Well, I have no RCT, you know? So you go ahead and fix the heart, right? So if a situation is dire, that's one thing. Or if, um, or if the risk is zero, like there's zero risk, but it may be good. In most cases, there's not a zero risk. Or if, um, or if, and, and also maybe if it's inexpensive, if there's zero risk and it's inexpensive as well. So okay. like, I don't know what you guys think about masks for COVID. Like, are you, is this a third rail topic? We don't want to talk about this. Um, um, we can talk Go about for it. it. What are well, your thoughts? Yeah. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I don't think I mean, they, I don't think they work. I actually think that COVID is way overblown. That's just my own personal thing. I, don't talk about it much anymore because people get uh, very yeah. inflamed about it. Yeah. But that, those are my thoughts. Yeah. I don't think a mask does anything. Okay, cool. Well, do you think a mask hurts? No, no, I don't think it hurts. So, so in that case, that's like a kind of intervention we're talking about. Like yeah. you don't think it, you don't know if it helps, you don't know if it hurts, but it could help. Mm-hmm. So, or so you know, it's, it's not going to yeah. hurt. You I just help. wear it when I go in places. Yeah. Just, same. Yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. So that's, yeah, that's the example. Okay. So nutrition science, then nutrition, we don't have RCTs, right? For ethical, logistical, financial reasons, whatever. So therefore we still have to make a decision because the situation is dire, right? We talked about heart, heart disease, congenital heart defects, but like it's the same thing with eating. We have to eat. Mm-hmm. We have to make one choice or the other. Got to eat something. You got to eat something. So are you going to inform yourself with the best evidence or no evidence? 
you could go with no evidence. You could go with just like how you feel, right? Yeah. And how you feel is good and how you perform is really good. That's really good. And that's something you can figure out really quick in the mm-hmm. short term. But the long-term stuff with rare events, things are going to happen really rarely, like heart attacks, yeah. cancer, et cetera. And it's going to happen over a really long period of time where you can't really observe that cause and effect relationship and you can't give, get enough data points in your life to do mm-hmm. it. That's where stuff like epidemiology, it, it's, epidemiology is basically a collection of anecdotes which you control for different factors. Mm-hmm. That's all epidemiology is. So if Paul Saladino goes on and says, I like anecdotes, I don't like epidemiology. Epidemiology is, is just anecdotes done systematically. So that, anyway, so that's what I'll say. So you have to, you have to use something for nutrition. So you have to use epidemiology for nutrition, but you want to be unbiased. You want to be unbiased. So to be scientific means you're not favoring any hypothesis or the other. You're favoring um, just what the data says. What does the data say? So to be unbiased, you have to use epidemiology in a consistent manner. What Paul does is he sometimes says, I hate epidemiology. And he other times he uses epidemiology. He like does it all the time. I'm just trying to think of like a recent example. Um, he does it all the time. Uh, so you, what you want to do is you want to have a place for epidemiology that no matter what it tells you, whether you like it or not, if, if you know uh, that if it was done a certain way, the right way, mm-hmm. and the other study is also done a certain way, you have to accept both of those studies. You can't just reject one and accept the other. That's it. That's all. So once you, once you decide in nutrition, we also have to include epidemiology, animal studies, all these other things that are weak evidence because we have to eat. You have to, you have to consistently apply each piece of evidence. And that's the other thing. Uh, that's the thing that also bothers me. Cherry, this cherry picking stuff. Cause so yes, uh, that would be, sorry, the question what was the question. Um, just how you feel about nutritional epidemiology, since that's how majority of those studies are done. Okay. But the, the other thing about nutritional epidemiology is like, I think something like 70% of epidemiological studies are, are at least not inconsistent with the randomized control trial findings that they end up testing those things later on. Okay. So if you have to eat, you have a 70% chance that you're right. Then um, I would go with, that's why you can actually side with epidemiology. Whereas there's an asymmetry with supplements and other things. Okay. So this is really important with drugs, supplements, surgeries, other things like that. They, they almost never work. Or they, they don't work often, like 10% or 15% of the time. This is the asymmetry. If you take any new idea at all, mm-hmm. you just take any new idea, you ask whether it's going to work. By default, historically speaking, we know it's not likely to work. Cool. But with nutrition, there's only two ways to do it. More food or less food, right? And is, so like more, yes, you know. But... <sighs> So it's like it's like a 50-50 chance if you choose at random. Yeah. That's already better. And then if you choose in in, in and then if you choose consistent with epidemiology, then it's like a 70% chance. Okay. So in those so it's really weird. So in the case of like epidemiology say for hydroxychloroquine, like they had the hydroxychloroquine epidemiology that's like on everybody would rage on Twitter like why don't you understand that hydroxychloroquine works? They don't understand these are epidemiological studies, these are not randomized controlled trials. We find out like a week ago that hydroxychloroquine in the randomized controlled trials probably increased the mortality. So so they thought because the epidemiology said this. So whenever you talk about drugs, epidemiology is good to give you information. It's not good to make decisions. Yeah. When you talk about I people aren't going to accept this, but 
I would like some arguments why this is not true. But you talk about nutrition because of these studies. I'm actually going to just make a web page to just document all the studies that I've talked about here. But because these studies suggest that epidemiology tends to be right 70% of the time, it's a good bet to go with epidemiology unless you have a really good reason otherwise. So doesn't it like uh, would, yeah. you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground here today on a lot of different things from a nutritional perspective. Uh, it just seems to me that it just makes the most sense just to be reasonable with your food consumption. And when you, when you're starting to think about, okay, uh, overeating seems to be problematic, then you can maybe start to think, what are some ways that I could just not overeat? You know, what are, how, how yeah. can I go about doing this? And I think, you know, if you stick to kind of the natural foods, you know, uh, berries and nuts and uh, fruits, vegetables, meats, things like that. Uh, I think it simplifies things a lot. Yep. It makes everything a little bit, a little bit easier. But like for me personally, I don't necessarily think that like blueberries are, you know, super beneficial or that spinach is super beneficial. I think the benefit of some of those foods and even like a sweet potato or some rice or something is simply that it's just not more meat. And it could it could maybe potentially assist you in eating a little bit less food and also maybe give you a little bit of diversity. Maybe we're supposed to have some diversity. If I'm being reasonable and I'm being rational, I could say, well, I don't know. I don't think it makes sense to eat only meat all the time. I mean, we probably ate some different things. We probably didn't only eat cows. We probably, you know, and who knows what we were evolved into being or being able to do. I, don't, I have no idea, but. It just from a from a rational standpoint of eating some of the things that are available, some of the things that are nutritious, and occasionally eating some of the things that uh, taste way better than that. All that seems very reasonable and rational way of going about doing things. And then also just saying like, okay, well, I we live in a society where there's a, an abundance of food. Most people have not only a refrigerator full of food, but a freezer full of food. Maybe even potentially another refrigerator, and also like a pantry full of a bunch of shit that we really don't need, which a pantry probably shouldn't exist in the first place. Uh, then you start to say, okay, well maybe I should be moving around exercising a little bit because our ancestors probably moved around a lot. And so I should find a way to move because I mainly sit on my ass all day if I'm being honest and I'm being reasonable. And so that's some of the conclusions that I've come to over the years after, you know, listening to many people that have been on the show and just kind of, rubbing elbows with people that are really studying it uh, a lot like yourself. And I, I really actually appreciate and love the fact that there are people like you trying to poke holes uh, in some of the theories that we're seeing shared by other people. But I also like the people that are the quacks because the quacks are the ones that are going to get us to results the fastest. The people that are the most extreme, they like take uh, like high level bodybuilding, for example. There's just so much to be learned from high-level bodybuilding in terms of them using insulin and growth hormone and testosterone and all these other things that it has kind of a top-down approach. And it can assist a lot of, uh, lot of regular folks to make better decisions or to um, just have better understanding of everything in general. The same thing has happened in like NASCAR or some of these uh, uh, things where – certain protective devices have come from those vehicles and then ended up in our vehicles. And, and we kind of see that. So I kind of like that we have guys like yourself. And I like that we have guys like Dave Asprey and Mark Sisson and some of these other guys that may occasionally say something that's a little, a little off or even potentially uh, way off or even myself saying something that's way off. But I think it gives us good conversation and can help us all maybe recognize that we could all do a better job being a little bit more reasonable. I agree with that. Um, 
hundred percent. I just think that people should not overstate what the science does and doesn't say. They should just be like, they should be humble about it, which I, like I try to be, you know, um, that's all. I like that. It's so fun when they do say things that are it is so well. fun, right? <laughs> yeah. The like, absolutes. It's like, like it or like, like him or not. Like Trump was really entertaining, especially oh, whenever so fun. Sp- oh, oh, I'm probably gonna get into like big trouble. With my friends are like, they're not going to look at me the same way after this, but like, Uh-oh. um, especially leading up to the election 2016 election that was so good it was so good you wanted to vote for him just because he was so funny you know <laughs> even though even though he was terrible he's so he's terrible. A, he's, a, he's so terrible and i'm so happy that he's gone like i'm so happy that he's gone but but there's one thing about him like he was entertaining as hell you know and 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 twitter is not the place it used to be anymore mm. you know but, the uh, trump news cycle was definitely the funnest news cycle i've ever experienced in my lifetime it was yeah uh, but terrifying too, because eventually like, oh, the yeah. capital was going to get taken over and sacked at some point. Like, <laughs> and it did, like literally to get sacked, like, it was going to get blown up at some point. It's, yeah. So, but yeah, so we need we need that to happen again. In, like twenty years, we need every once in a while we need somebody like that to entertain us. Andrew, take us on out of here, buddy. I will, and I can't change the camera because my camera died. Uh, but thank you, everybody, for checking out today's episode. Go pick up a meat salad right now at Piedmontese.com. <laughs> Again, use promo code POWERPROJECT for 25% off your order. Um, please follow the podcast at Mark Bell's Power Project on Instagram, at MB Power Project on TikTok and Twitter. Uh, my Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse is at I am Andrew Z. And Seema, where are you at? At Seema Inyang on Instagram, YouTube, uh, Clubhouse, TikTok, and see me yin yang on Twitter. Kevin? Uh, Kevin Bass on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. And there's two ends there. So At Mark Smelly Bell, strength is never weakness, weakness never strength. Catch you guys later. <laughs>